Good morning. The meeting will come to order. This is the January 11, 2023 Budget and Finance Committee. I am Supervisor Hillary Ronan, Chair of the Committee. I am joined, or we will be joined shortly, by uh, Vice Chair Supervisor Asha Safai, and we are joined by Supervisor Melgar, who is substituting for uh, Member Chan, who will not be here today. Uh, we're also going to be joined today for items number one by Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you for being here. And I believe Supervisor Preston uh, will be joining us as well. And Supervisor Engardio uh, is going to tag team out with Supervisor Dorsey uh, at some point uh, in, in the hearing. So I wanted to thank uh, all the supervisors uh, for joining this hearing, uh, hearing number one, which will be very important. Uh, our clerk is Brent Halipa, and I'd like to thank Matthew Ignao from SFGovTV for broadcasting this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Thank you, and Happy New Year, Madam Chair. Uh, just a friendly reminder for those in attendance in the chamber to please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. Uh, the Board of Supervisors and its committees are now convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The board recognizes that equitable public access is essential. It will be taking public comment as follows. First, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, and then we will take those who are awaiting on the telephone line. Uh, for those watching either channels 26, 28, 78, or 99, and sfgovtv.org, the public, call -in, public comment call-in number is streaming across the screen. That number is 415-655-0001. Again, that's 415-655-0001. Then enter the meeting ID of 2499-104-6355, then pound and pound again. Uh, when connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you'll be muted and in listening mode only. Uh, when your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak and those on telephone should dial star three to also be added to the speaker line. If you are on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices you may be using. Each speaker will be allowed up to two minutes to speak unless otherwise stated. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Uh, email them to myself, the Budget and Finance Committee Clerk at brent.jalipa at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office at City Hall. That's 1, Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. Uh, finally, items acted upon today are expected to appear after the Martin Luther King holiday on the Board of Supervisors agenda of January 24th, unless otherwise stated. Madam Chair. Thank you so much. Can you please read item number one? Oh, I'm sorry, Madam Chair. Uh, can we have a motion to excuse Supervisor Chan? Absolutely. Chan? Thank you for okay. reminding me. Can I, I'll make a motion to excuse Supervisor Chan from this meeting. On that motion, Vice Chair Safai. Aye. <laughs> Safai, aye. Uh, Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. That motion passes unanimously. Now, Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number one? 
Yes, Madam Chair. Item number one is a hearing to determine why the Department of Public Health stopped any plans toward opening wellness hubs with the Gubbio Project and SF AIDS Foundation and how DPH plans to implement its own overdose prevention plan, uh, address open air drug use and improve conditions on the chair without the wellness hubs and discuss whether other organizations that DPH has been working with uh, to open and operate wellness hubs and they're requesting DPH and the mayor's office to report members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment on these uh, on this hearing, uh, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2499-104-6355, then press pound twice. Once connected, you will need to press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, <clears throat> that will be your cue to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you so much. Before uh, we begin this hearing, I wanted to play a little snippet of a um, mini documentary called America's First Supervised Drug Consumption Site on Point, New York City. Um, after that, I'll have some comments, turn it over to supervisors for any opening comments, and then uh, we will hear from our two uh, invited esteemed guests, um, uh, Sam Rivera and Alex Kral. <laughs> If we can start the video. It's, it's unique to New York, but a lot of our folks use parks. It's where they hide out, it's where they could really get some privacy. What we just heard, which is literally right in the moment, they used to collect thousands of, uh, of syringes monthly. And there was a huge drop. And the parks department reached out to us and said, what's going on? What's, we're, we're shocked. Do you have more people in the parks? Because we have a team that goes into the parks. So they thought for sure we increased that team. They're not seeing the syringes in the way they were before. And so Kaylin pulled the data and can see when the number changed and it literally changed when we opened the OPC. So all of those syringes, what we found was we have 13,000 syringes. <laughs> so we have them. It is just like, wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just, fucking amazing um, that we're making that impact, you know, and, um, uh, is a big deal to make sure uh, that uh, not only that we uh, provide services to our people, but also uh, impact the community. You know, we're not against the community. We agree with the community. So to know that uh, we collected 13,000 syringes that uh, could have been in a park, and we have them, and we'll dispose of them safely, is beautiful. I'm, I'm, I've been homeless more times than I can count the last year, and it sucks. Me, I'm a big believer in harm reduction because it saved me personally. If I wasn't, I'd be using the street, I'd be using dirty needles. Um, you know, I pick needles up off the ground to use them and stuff like that, and none of that's healthy, safe. And that's, you know, how I, it's led me to be in the hospital multiple times, you know, like the last time I was in the hospital, I was there for 80 days. I had a blood and diet staph infection and then I had um, MRSA. So I almost died. I've really seen what it's like to not be able to get the help that you need and not be able to be who you really are and the way that it hurts and divides families and uh, creates so much pain for people that lasts for a really long time and harm reduction is a remedy to so much of that. It's a blessing to talk to people about what's really happening. What are they, what are they self-medicating? What is the pain they're dealing with? Where does this come from? What happened in your life 
uh, or mental illness? What is it that's driving you to self-medicate? All of us, many of us in this world, we, we self-medicate in different ways. Some people self-medicate through food, gambling, through a number of things, shopping. For help people, they're self-medicating pain. A lot of deep, deep pain. We know that most of the people we work with have been physically abused, have been sexually abused. There are elements of, of, of pain that people just oftentimes can't recognize. I was talking to a, a few of our participants and they were like, well, I don't, I can't remember anything major in my life. And then as we're talking, they go, I'm, it's not like my mom, you know, who used to get abused in front of me. And I'm like, there it is. There it is. At the core of your drug use is this trauma you're self-medicating. Thank you. And, and again, um, if you'd like to watch the whole 13-minute video, you can look it up on YouTube. It's called America's First Supervised Drug Consumption Site on Point NYC. Colleagues, I have called this hearing today to learn from leaders in New York and in the academic community about how safe consumption sites save lives, improve street conditions, and help drug users access treatment and other services. This hearing is a little different than your typical Board of Supervisors hearings in that we have asked our city staff to sit down and listen to outside experts instead of present themselves. Because frankly, New York is ahead of San Francisco in addressing the overdose epidemic. In fact, while we move backwards, New York and other cities in Rhode Island are forging ahead and saving hundreds of lives in the process. I want to welcome and thank the Director of Behavioral Health, Dr. Hilary Cunnins from DPH, Commander Fong and Diana Oliva Roche from SFPD, Assistant Deputy Chief Simon Pang from the San Francisco Fire Department, Ann Pearson from the City Attorney's Office, and Tom Polino and Budget Director Ann Dunning from the Mayor's Office for being here to listen. I want to welcome city staff and to ask Sam and Alex, uh, to ask Sam and Alex any questions they might have during this hearing similar to members of the Board of Supervisors. If you want to ask a question, just get my attention, raise your hand and I'll, and I'll note it on stack. And, and this is really an opportunity for the whole city uh, family to learn from what's happening in New York City. As we know, the Tenderloin Lincoln Center, which reversed 333 overdoses during its 11 months of operation, closed last month. DPH had told me and supervisors, other supervisors, that it planned to open wellness hubs that would provide overdose prevention services, including safe consumption areas, services to improve health and linkages to treatment. However, for reasons that are not entirely clear, we learned from several of our community partners that the plan to open wellness centers came to a screeching halt with no alternative plans to address the crisis. Our mayor has said that the reason she isn't opening wellness centers with safe consumption areas is because of legal concerns by the city attorney. The city attorney has said that he supports San Francisco following the quote unquote New York model. <laughs> so why aren't we working to open up centers a la the New York model to save the approximately two San, Francisco's, San Franciscans a day that we lose to overdose and simultaneously improve the abysmal street conditions in several neighborhoods, including the mission, the mission in my district where open air drug use is common. 
The people of San Francisco deserve better, and I am grateful and excited to hear from Sam Rivera and Alex Kral about the enormous success that On Point in New York has had in Harlem and Washington Heights in New York City. <coughs> Since our mayor and city attorney have openly supported the quote-unquote New York model, we thought it would make sense to bring the architects of the New York model here to San Francisco and talk to us about that model and teach us how to open the New York model here in San Francisco. New York was the first state in the nation to open and operate safe consumption sites, an effort spearheaded by Sam Rivera, the executive director of On Point NYC. On Point NYC is a harm reduction organization that provides services to vulnerable populations such as drug users and unhoused individuals. Sam Rivera has been so kind to come to San Francisco to share his experience and expertise in operating these sites with us, answer questions, and to encourage San Francisco to open these life and neighborhood changing centers. Sam has over 31 years of social service experience. His primary focus of expertise lies in criminal justice and reentry, HIV AIDS, harm reduction, addiction recovery, and mental health. He brings to this role his several decades of cutting-edge service provision experience and a commitment to social justice. He has dedicated his professional career to ameliorating the harms associated with the war on drugs and those impacted by the criminal justice system, racism, sexism, structural inequality, and mass incarceration. We are also joined today by Alex Kral, an epidemiologist with expertise in community-based research with urban poor populations and drug policy. He has 20 plus years of experience in researching safe consumption sites around the world, and most of the articles on this topic have been either authored or co-authored by him. I would also like to thank Supervisor Dean Preston and Supervisor Matt Dorsey for leading the effort with me to open and operate safe consumption sites in our three neighborhoods that we represent in San Francisco. And I want to thank Supervisors um, Safai, let me see who else co-sponsored this hearing, Supervisors uh, Safai, Preston, Dorsey, Walton, and Chan for co-sponsoring this hearing. And with that, I wanted to offer the opportunity to any of my colleagues to make opening remarks before we then hand it over uh, to uh, Alex Rivera, uh, Sam Rivera, and then Alex Kral, uh, Supervisor Safai. Thank you, Chair. Uh, I want to thank my colleague, Supervisor Ronan, for being bold and for introducing this item here today and the resolution to move forward with safe consumption sites in San Francisco. Um, that we've come to supporting this from slightly different perspectives, truthfully. Um, I've been and remain a strong proponent of abstinence-based recovery, along with my colleagues, Supervisor Stephanie and Dorsey, and others on the board here. But because that we've heard mainly from those in the recovery community those from the black and brown recovery community specifically asking for that option, which that has not, has not, let me repeat, has not been widely offered in San Francisco until recently. And it's mainly done through our reentry in our criminal justice and adult probation system, not through our Department of Public Health. We finally were able to, though, with adult probation and public health, bring a model together that was a joint partnership, and I'm very proud of that, and I want to thank Dr. Kunins and, and Adult Probation, Steve Adami and others for coming together on that. Um, this is something, abstinence-based recovery works for many people, um, 
and so does harm reduction. We need a true continuum of care, harm reduction all the way to true abstinence-based recovery, uh, but we don't necessarily have that now in San Francisco. Um, we're really trying to work on both ends, and I think that's what today's hearing is really all about. Uh, we're very fortunate in District 11 that we don't have the same level of open-air drug dealing and drug use as other parts of the city, but that does not mean that we don't need to be part of the solution. Uh, other neighborhoods in the city have this as well, and there needs to be a citywide solution to this problem. Um, when many people come to San Francisco, and they go into our downtown core, um, when families come off of BART, um, and they are first things that they see often in San Francisco is the despair on the streets, is our inability to effectively deliver a true system of recovery in our city. And that is something that we all see on a daily basis. We see that crisis. And in its worst form, we see what happened yesterday when people lose their control and treat people in an inhumane way that are in crisis on our streets that really, really need some form of recovery. So I believe we need an all of the above approach to solve these problems. And that's why I support wellness hubs. <laughs> Well-run wellness hubs, as, we, as we've seen in New York, save lives, and they prevent overdoses, and they reduce open-air drug dealing on our streets. Um, we also need this mayor and the departments in our city under her control to communicate effectively a clear strategy on how to deliver these services and how we are going to proceed as a city. We can't have a stop and start approach that leaves everyone, including the most vulnerable, in a lurch. So during the early days of the HIV AIDS crisis, we took on that challenge through supporting needle exchange and being bold and being a model for the rest of the country, and we saved lives. We can do it again. We need to be bold. We need our city and our mayor to be brave and our city attorney, and we need to take this crisis head on. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Melker. Thank you, Chair Ronan, uh, for your stick-to-itiveness and your courage. Um, I, as I told you during our conversation about this issue, uh, I very much support uh, this effort. Um, and, you know, I represent the West Side, like Supervisor Safai, uh, we don't have a lot of open-air drug use uh, or drug sales uh, in my district. Um, I will say, though, that I have devoted a lot of my work as a district supervisor um, to issues around uh, children uh, and trauma, um, and I spend a lot of my career in your district working with kids, and I think that, um, you know, something that uh, our presenter, who will come up, uh, said during the video that really struck me um, is about um, the community. Um, and, you know, I think that the harm reduction approach also extends to reducing the harm in the community, to um, having kids exposed to folks inflicting violence on themselves because they have no other way of dealing with trauma. And that 
does affect the development of our kids. Um, it is traumatic. It is violent. We need to be able to uh, get a hold of it and address it in an effective way. We need to protect folks in the community uh, from the constant infliction of harm, whether it's you know uh, self-medication or addressing trauma. It doesn't matter. It's still violence. And I um, think that we need to be courageous. Um, and I understand there are risks, but I think that if New York can figure it out, surely we can too. Uh, so um, I am uh, really grateful for your approach because I do think that we can be creative. We don't have, you know, I don't, I've never heard you advocate for like one model or one approach. Um, there are many ways that we can get this done to minimize uh, the harms. Uh, but I do believe that we have to do this. We have to tackle it and, uh, ha you know, pursue things that are evidence based um, in that work. Uh, so uh, thank you again, uh, Chair Ronan, for this hearing. And I um, am really looking forward to hearing from the experts and from the community. Great, thank you. Supervisor Dorsey. Uh, thank you so much. I want to express my, uh, my gratitude to um, my colleague, Supervisor Ronan, and also uh, Supervisors Safai, Preston, uh, Walton, and Chan, our co-sponsors in this um, effort. You know, this uh, is something that I would, it would be important to me as a matter of public policy based on what we're up against, but there's also a personal aspect of this um, for me. I am a person who is in recovery. I am an addict and an alcoholic. I am a longtime beneficiary of uh, and strong believer in abstinence-based recovery. Um, but you know, as we've discussed, it only works for people who are alive. And given the potent lethality of drugs like fentanyl um, that are now fueling our drug overdose crisis, um, there is real need and urgency um, to pursue harm reduction strategies that um, save lives and that provide an interim step toward the promise of real recovery. Um, I am convinced that the Wellness Hub model um, offers us a way to uh, assure safer use and also safer neighborhoods, um, affirming a principle that harm reduction is about the quality of life and well-being for individuals as well as for the community. Uh, you know, I pulled the um, original uh, Health Commission um, uh, resolution on our harm reduction policy, <clears throat> and it made a reference to what was then perceived as a crisis of drug overdose deaths that was under 200. Um, you know, we, we wish we could have those days back um, as we approach a year that is likely going to be uh, well over 600. Um, it, but it did notably mention that the, the real promise of harm reduction is about um, people helping people who use drugs, um, but also about the wellness and the safety and the well-being of the community uh, as well. Um, so I think that is going to be what I'm asking, uh, anxious to hear about and what I will likely be asking about. Um, but I, again, I want to appreciate the people who are going to be presenting today and my colleagues. Thank you so much. And finally, Supervisor Preston. Thank you, Chair Ronan. And um, I really want to thank you for your, your leadership on this and, and for creating this space for the conversation as you've described that I think is really uh, important for, for our city. I uh, appreciate so many city departments uh, being here and the support of so many of our, of our colleagues. And I will say that this is, this is an area, despite 
uh, often, I think, many disagreements in, in city government where we're seeing an emerging consensus. I was really encouraged, and, and I want to I should really uh, thank Department of Public Health and uh, Dr. Cunnins in particular for all her work as well as uh, the, the mayor for her involvement and sign off on the, on the overdose prevention plan that our office worked closely with DPH on and with, with advocates that I think was a real step forward in pulling together a lot of the thinking on how we address public health uh, crisis with a public health uh, response and um, and I think that was a, a significant uh, step forward I think that um, I want to make sure that the that really the promises that were laid out there that I think had that broad consensus um, and and were discussed in prior hearings and in the overdose prevention plan around opening an over uh, a safe consumption site in 2022 we've missed that uh, window hopefully will get back on track and and in opening multiple sites in 2023. I feel like those were uh, promises made to the public um, and that we should be uh, delivering on those um, with, with urgency. And I think that your um, package here and this hearing are really an integral part of, of moving us forward. Um, toward that. I, I think others have said it really well around the learning from the, the New York model and recognizing something that I do want to just name, which is people often talk about the federal laws here as being a barrier, you know? And just to be really blunt, like New York City, last I checked, is under the same federal laws that the city and county of San Francisco is on. So the city attorney can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I, th I think the federal law applies equally in New York. So um, I know Mr. Rivera will, will uh, uh, tell us how they're, how they're doing it in, in New York, um, as well as uh, Dr. Krell. I, I, um, last thing I want to say, I, I know there's a lot of folks uh, to hear from, and, and um, I want to echo Supervisor Safai's um, advice that we be bold and be a model here. Um, and I, I would add to it, I think we also need to be really transparent about what we're doing. And I want to emphasize that there is absolutely no shame in what we are doing here. And we should be absolutely open and clear that we are embracing safe consumption sites, not as the only answer, but as part of the answer uh, to the overdose crisis uh, here in San Francisco. Um, and before uh, the chair turns it over to our speakers, I want to give a final um, extra thank you to Mr. Rivera, Dr. Krull, all of the folks who advocate for, um, for the meaningful and proven public health responses to this public health crisis and who are often subject to an incredible amount of vitriol, uh, personal attacks on them um, when they carry this message around uh, how we need to respond uh, to this crisis. And I, I want to just thank all of the advocates for what they have to endure to uh, put forward these solutions to work with us uh, and to help educate the public about what uh, these sites really are about and what they can do to actually uh, lead us in a much more positive direction. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and with that, we're going to call up Alex Kral to present first.
It doesn't matter. And do you have my uh, slides up there too? Move that along the way. Asking the clerk if we can show the slides. Great, thank you very much. Um, uh, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to come to this hearing today. It's nice to be back. I've uh, been here many times over the last three decades uh, as I have been conducting research on drug use uh, in San Francisco since 1993. This marks the 30th year of me, of me doing that. Um, I am an infectious disease epidemiologist and a distinguished fellow at the nonprofit health research institute called RTI International. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm also, uh, you know, a resident of San Francisco and have been for these 30 years as well. And, uh, and um, so it, it, is, it, is a, it is an absolute uh, pleasure not just to be here at the hearing, but also to be uh, co-presenting here with, with Sam Rivera, who is, um, whose uh, program has, uh, uh, I'm also part of evaluating, uh, I'm one of the uh, people that's helping to evaluate that um, um, program as well. Um, so um, I um, am going to be today talking specifically just giving and providing you all a summary of the existing peer-reviewed scientific literature on overdose prevention sites, and that's, that's the main uh, focus of the work that I'll be doing here. Um, and then um, Sam will be talking about the New York model and, 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 and the work that they, that they are doing there. Um, if you can uh, move to the next slide, um, that would be great. Um, basically, as, as um, you know, Hillary um, mentioned, overdose prevention sites are places basically where, where people can use pre-obtained drugs under the supervision of a health professional who is equipped with um, oxygen and or naloxone um, because they can use those in case there is an opioid-related overdose to reverse that overdose right then and there. That, that's at the basic of what they are. Um, these are also, and I know I, I heard several supervisors calling these by different names, they're also called you know, uh, safe consumption sites or supervised injection facilities or drug consumption rooms. There's a lot of different names for them. Um, but essentially, um, what they can be is either a standalone site that just essentially does that, which is just supervise the people who are working, who are who are using drugs in front of them, and, and, and able to um, able to uh, intervene in case there's an overdose. But most of them are actually part of larger sites that provide a broad set of services. That's um, that that is much more in line with, um, from my understanding, of what the Wellness Hub model would be here. Um, in, in San Francisco and also is, is exactly the kind of model that they have uh, at the two sites in New York, uh, both of which I've visited and, and, and um, they're quite impressive uh, model that they have there. Um, and so um, what I'm going to be talking about here at this point is that there, there really is a large, and if we can move to the next slide, um, there is a large um, body of, of, of work on this. Um, you know, legally sanctioned overdose prevention sites have existed for over 35 years uh, globally. So this is not a new thing. It's a new thing here, but it is not a new thing uh, in the world. Thir 35 years is a long time. You, you go back to the 80s here at this point, right? Um, they currently operate in, in well over 150 cities in 15 countries in Europe, uh, Canada, Australia, and, and now the United States. 
And, and as mentioned, the first government-sanctioned site in, in, in the, the U.S. Uh, opened last November 30th um, by On Point uh, in, in New York City, and you'll be hearing more about that later. Um, but the, the scope of the peer-reviewed science, given that there's 35 years of, of these operating around the world, the scope of the science is quite strong. Um, and um, there's well over 100 um, articles that's published in the peer-reviewed medical and epidemiological literature on OPS. Um, this isn't just some sort of uh, intervention that's just kind of showing up and we don't know much about it in some sort of way. This is a very thorough, um, um, thoroughly researched topic. Um, scientists from Europe, Canada, Australia, Mexico, United States, um, and, and really representing academic disciplines um, you know, a diversity of, of disciplines, epidemiology, medicine, sociology, criminology, anthropology, economics, criminology, law, public health. I mean, this is, there is, there is papers that are written in just about every discipline you can possibly think of related to this topic. Um, and the study methods have been, you know, quantitative studies, qualitative studies, um, ethnography, uh, cost-benefit analyses, um, case studies. That there's lots of different kinds of methods that have been that have been used. And, and the articles are not, you know, they, they, they are they're, they're published in the top medical journals of the world. We're talking about New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, JAMA. You know, these are articles. These are these are, you know, peer-reviewed um, medical. Um, journals that, that even lay folks have heard of because they are the ones that really are the most important and most impressive. So, so the science is quite broad on this topic. It, it is quite impressive and rigorous at this point. Um, so what I'm going to do, um, if you move on to um, the next one, and I guess I'm a little slow to, remove the, uh, to move this up. Let's move on to the next one after that, if you can. I'm going to um, first give you an idea about what the global evidence is of overdose prevention sites, and then I'll, uh, I'll speak specifically to what we know from the peer-reviewed literature in the U.S. after that. And, and really what we're interested in looking at when we are um, trying to assess the impact of overdose prevention sites is both What's the impact on, on the wellness of, of the people who are actually going to use these sites? That's a very important component. Um, and then also, what's the impact on the neighborhoods in which they're placed? And so there's both of these things that are really important in thinking about this work. Um, so starting then with the global evidence uh, on, the, on the impact of the people who use OPS, it is, it is quite clear. There is, there's a lot of articles on this. They, they reduce overdose deaths. They reduce HIV, viral hepatitis, uh, and, and associated risk behaviors. They reduce the frequency of drug use. Um, they improve access to health and social services. Um, they increase access to substance use disorder treatment. Um, and so they're a conduit. Not only, not only they help people in terms of the, the, the illnesses and diseases and death, but they also help to get people as a conduit to go to other kinds of health care and social services as well. And the, and the data is clear on this. Uh, everywhere that they've looked at this, in Europe, Australia, Canada, wherever we go, uh, um, that, that is what they've found. If you can move to the next slide. Um, so then moving on to the global evidence um, on these, uh, regarding the impact uh, on the communities themselves uh, outside of that. Um, first of all, um, there are studies that have shown that they reduce public injection, which I think is one of the issues that's a big one here, public drug use, and also improper disposal of needles. And I think we saw that in the, in the, in the video clip that was shown uh, earlier uh, as well. Uh, but the science uh, absolutely supports that as, as well, that, that that is something that it does. Um, they also are, have shown in those neighborhoods where, you, where you, once you place these sites to uh, reduce drug-related crime and violence in those neighborhoods. And some people might think that's 
counterintuitive, but it's actually what happens is the, is, is the other way around. It actually reduces drug-related crime and violence in the neighborhoods you place these. That's what the research has shown so far. Um, and finally, um, it reduces the demand for ambulance services for opioid-related overdoses. And that's a big one I think we're thinking about here in San Francisco is, you know, if, if you have a site and people can actually reverse those, safely reverse the overdoses right at the site, that obviates the need for an ambulance to come. And that's, that, that basically means that the ambulances can be used for other kinds of things in neighborhoods uh, other than that particular moment um, that, that's needed for that overdose. So, um, so those are the main uh, ways that the science has been shown so far globally um, to impact, uh, impact both people and the communities um, that they are placed. You can move to the next slide. Um, moving on to the United States, um, and this is, um, again, that this is where uh, most of my research and, and as, as um, Supervisor Ronan um, mentioned, I, I have been, you know, evaluating these uh, types of sites uh, in the United States for the last eight years now, um, and, um, and I'm, part of, I'm, I'm part of the team in New York City, but, um, you know, they have a paper that they published in the JAMA Network Open just uh, earlier this year on just the first two months of the operations of the New York site. And in just those two, uh, two months, they saw uh, nearly 6,000 um, drug, or they, they supervised uh, nearly 6,000 drug uh, consumption events. Uh, there were 54 overdose interventions with naloxone or, or oxygen right then and there, and no fatalities during just those two months. And I'm sure um, Sam will talk about some updated numbers from what they have now, but this is what's uh, in the peer-reviewed literature at this point, which is why I'm focusing on those numbers right now. Um, furthermore, we have conducted, uh, and my colleagues have conducted, a series of studies looking uh, and, and, uh, and assessing an unsanctioned site in somewhere in the United States um, that opened one of these sites now seven or eight years ago, I think it is. Um, and in doing that, uh, we published a paper in the New England Journal of, of, of Medicine a couple of years ago. Um, the, there was, at that point, uh, over 10,000 injections that they had supervised. There were 33 overdoses. Um, there were no fatalities, um, and not only were there no fatalities, but they actually never needed to call 911 uh, once uh, to that site. That, no, they would have if they needed to, but they didn't need to because they had uh, what they needed to right then and there to do that, to, to take care of the, the issue right then and there. Um, we also conducted a study uh, around that of people in that, uh, in that city um, of people who were um, using drugs, and some of them were using the site, and others were not using the site. So we compared what does it look like for people who use drugs who go to the site versus those who don't go to the site. Um, you know, what we found was um, 40, uh, um, I'm sorry, 54% fewer emergency department visits and 50% fewer nights in a hospital among the people who go to these sites. And so that's a great thing for them, uh, for the people doing that, but that's also a great thing for, for the city itself, that you're now not using resources uh, for, for, uh, you know, for, um, for, for overdoses and these sorts of things as well. Um, we also looked at um, um, the uh, receptive syringe sharing, right, which is one of the ways that you can get um, both HIV or viral hepatitis, and there was 83% lower rates of, of, of sharing among the people who went to these sites, right, because you go to these sites and you, you get sterile syringes, and not only do you get sterile syringes, but when you're done using them, you deposit them right then and there, so they're not coming into the community either, and so they're taking care of uh, that particular aspect of it as well. So that's not a surprise that we found that as well. Um, if you can move on to the next slide. Um, we have looked at a couple of different things, too, that we published papers on. Um, 
that have looked at um, the impact on the community, and there's in particular two studies that we did. Um, one of them showed that, and again, this was the study of um, you know, comparing the people who use the site to people who don't use the site. There's 58% lower rates of uh, the number of um, improperly disposed syringes among the people who are going to the site. So again, it's, it, it sort of makes intuitive sense, but it's nice to have the data show that you know they're not you know they're not discarding these needles out in the in, in the community because well they're using them at the site and and, and they're disposing of them there. Um, the other study um, that I think is of, of of critical importance here as well is that we looked at the issue of crime because people are concerned about the point that maybe. You know, maybe there's this sort of honeypot effect whereby if you open a, a site somewhere now, you're going to bring a bunch of, of crime to the neighborhood if, 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 if you have that sort of site, that kind of thing. So what we did there was a study in this, in this city, and we looked at all the crime data, both um, drug-related uh, crime data and non-drug-related crime data. And we uh, basically drew a 500-meter circle around the site, and then we had two other neighborhoods that were very similar neighborhoods. Um, and we drew around uh, two other sites that didn't have OPS, but they were uh, basically drop-in centers. So they were very similar in nature, but they didn't have an overdose prevention site. And then we compared um, what happened to crime in, that, in the neighborhood the five years before it opened and then the five years after it opened. And what we found was that the crimes had actually been going up in that neighborhood really until the very, very year that these, that these opened, and then the slope was clearly down after that. And so we actually saw an, a decrease in crime around the site, and that was not something we saw in the, in the control area. So compared to the control areas, they, were not, they did not come down that way. And so it was very clear that this site, and, and, and this was an unsanctioned site even, so, you know, it, you know which had some limitations to, to it, what they could do. But if you can do this more, I think, and, and can have a better ones, I, you know, I think it's, it's pretty clear from the data that we've seen and that we've published in the peer-reviewed literature that, that not only does it not increase, but it actually helps to decrease crime around the area by having one of these sites. Um, okay, the last piece, uh, if we can move on to uh, the next slide here, is cost and cost effectiveness, because that's one of the things that as a city I'm sure you're uh, interested in as well. Um, and there have, at this point, there have been four <coughs> different studies um, that have been conducted and have been published in the peer-reviewed uh, literature on cost effectiveness and what it would look like in four different cities. Um, and I, I was part of uh, this, the one in San Francisco um, publishing that paper, which was now, I think, six or seven years ago, so we probably would need to update that at this point because the data is, is, is getting a little bit old. But even at that point, what it showed and what we basically looked at there was, okay, what if we took a site just like the main site in Vancouver and we put it in San Francisco. What would it cost to, to have such a site and what would um, the cost savings be in San Francisco from having such a site? And essentially what we found through that economic analysis was that for each dollar spent on this OPS, it would generate a $2.33 in savings. And so what that looked like at the time was I know, and we certainly need to update some of these data, but at the time, that basically ind indicated an annual net savings of $3.5 million for one single OPS that at that point would have a 13 boost, which was similar to the one that they had at the time in, in Vancouver. 
Um, similar kinds of analyses have then since then been done in Baltimore, and, and their number came up to close to $8 million annually. In Providence, it was $1 million a, a, a annually because they were basically comparing it to if you opened a syringe service site versus whether you opened an OPS. And they said, okay, well, above and beyond what you would get, kind of savings you would get from a syringe service site, um, you, you would get you know, a, a $1.1 million above and beyond that by also including an, a, an OPS. Um, and then finally, in, in, in New York City, uh, also apt to, to you know, today, and, and, and thinking about this New York model, um, they uh, estimated um, that just having one site uh, would save annually uh, between 800000 and $1.6 million. If they had four sites, they estimated uh, between three and almost $6 million a year. So, so um, if we go to the, the last slide here, um, you know, the summary here of um, the peer-reviewed science is, is, is very clear. It is rigorous, it is extensive. Um, we have decades of data on this uh, from, from around the world. And I think it's important to see that whereas we don't have a lot of data quite yet in the US because we don't have enough of these sites yet, the data that does exist basically shows the exact same things that we found in Canada, that we found in Europe, that we found in Australia. And so the indications are that it's not really operating any differently here than it would in those places. Um, so that's, 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 uh, that's the first point. Um, the second is that out of all of these peer-reviewed studies that have been done all this time, every single one of them has found positive impact of overdose prevention sites, both in the people who use them and on the communities in which they're placed. That, that's, um, I can tell you as a researcher, like, we don't see that in other things. Um, you wouldn't see that in, on, on drug treatment, for example. You certainly don't see that on drug treatment. You don't see it on, on, on most things. So this is actually a, a, um, an intervention that is, is as, as, uh, on as solid ground as just about any intervention, certainly that I've been involved in evaluating in the last 30 years that I've done, that I've done these kinds of evaluations. And, and, and lastly, like no peer-reviewed study has actually found any negative impact of, of OPS. So not only are they all showing positive things, but they have not found anything negative. So I can't report to you any data out there that shows something negative about these sites. Um, again, that's remarkable for an intervention of, of any type as a social scientist and as an epidemiologist, but certainly uh, specifically uh, with this one. So thank you very much for your time today. I'm happy to answer questions. I don't know if we're going to take those at the end or take them now, or how do you want to do that? I think we're going to hear from Sam Rivera first, if that's okay. okay. Um, and then we'll ask questions to both of you and bring you up to answer them, if that's Thank okay. you. Thank you. <clears throat> Hello, and thank you for having me join you. Uh, I'll say, like in New York, we say, how you doing? But <laughs> that just means hello, don't respond, please. It's just <laughs> people get confused and start answering and it causes all kinds of problems. <laughs> um, <laughs> but thank you so much for, for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here uh, to support uh, what people keep accusing you of already doing. <laughs> so I was telling somebody earlier that... Um, Every time we talked about opening, having the first two OPCs, they said, oh, but San Francisco already did it, right? And we're like, no, they didn't. <laughs> but, um, but it, you know, so it speaks to a lot of why I'm here and why, um, what I need to say and what I want to share with you um, about what we've done over this last year, the impact we've had, the, how are you? The, um, uh, a lot of the things people thought were going to happen and then what actually happened. Uh, so it's an, it's an important 
conversation to have. So on November 30th of last year, we opened the first two overdose prevention centers, safe consumption sites in the country. When I say we, I don't mean on point. I mean everyone who's um, ever lost somebody to an overdose, anyone who's ever uh, used drugs themselves, these amazing home reductionists here, it was important for us to look at this opening as a victory for anyone and everyone who's ever used drugs, and especially those of us fighting in harm reduction, for years and years to finally open one of these. So we celebrated that with, with everyone. When we opened, before we opened, we put a candle at every booth for those who didn't get the chance to be with us. And what we know is if you use an OPC, you don't have to die. It's just a fact. And you can have your opinions and feelings around them, but the fact is you don't have to die if you use an OPC. And that fact is 36, 37 years old. Um, I've been doing a number of different, you heard my bio, sometimes I hear it and wonder who you're talking about. But I've been doing this work for a long time, three decades, and harm reduction is the epitome of love, is the epitome of meeting people where they're at. Uh, that became a cliche for many providers in this work, in different work in the community. We meet them where they're at, but they, have to, they can't use that much, or they have to do this, or they have to show up like this. Then you're not meeting people where they're at. Harm reduction is the epitome of it, the epitome of meeting people and loving on them until they're ready to love on themselves. Truly being there at a time when they need you more than ever, at the most crucial time in their lives, is, is when harm reduction shows up. Um, we know that safe consumption sites is a health intervention, you know, and this is why language matters, right? I love the fact that you guys are talking about them as these hubs and health hubs and putting some positivity to it. Um, they don't have to be called drug use or something. Uh, drug use is one part of a person. It's not who they are. We shouldn't be identifying people in that way every time we talk about them. And what I say to people is if, if you think of the worst thing you've ever done in your life, and that's how we address you every time we see you, what would that feel like? All right? So how about calling people by their names and, and not by what we think of them? So when you start to experience that and have those relationships with people who are literally uh, in, in, in the depths of, of, of struggle, it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch. I'm blessed. I'm really blessed to have the, amazing, the most amazing staff on the planet who show up every day just to love on people because in any way possible and not judge them and, 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 and not to experience them in the way that other people do. Um, one of the biggest things I love, Alex talked about it, is harm reduction reduces use, and people don't get it. It truly does. And I'll talk briefly about what happens in the room. Let me back up a little bit. When you come in to, to utilize the OPC, many people think when you open a door to our site, you're going to open it, and there's just a bunch of people using drugs. It's not the case at all. You open the door, you come in, it's a drop-in center. People having coffee, watching a movie, meeting with a mental health professional, doing a variety of things, uh, preparing to go see a medical provider. Um, it's not, that's not what it is. It's one part of a larger organization. It's one part of an array of services that people need. Um, so when you come in, if you're going to use the site, we ask you a set of questions every time. Um, and it's important data to get, like where would you use if we weren't open? Have you had any police contact? What does that look like? Any updates with family? Anything like that, children. Um, and that stuff is gathered and it's important because what we know is if you don't have a safe consumption site, you have open air use. You have people using 
uh, quickly, really dangerously in an alley, in a bathroom, and things like that. So gathering that information is really important. Well, when someone enters the room uh, to use it, we know how much they're using and how they're using it. And what we see, and Kaylin C., our senior director of programs, says, the drug use in the room is the least interesting thing that happens because there's a community that happens in that room. There's, there are conversations going on. When we first open, we allow people, we still have them, to use screens if they, because they said to us, they were embarrassed to use in front of us. They felt like it was gross and they didn't want to do that. And eventually got comfortable. And we have these mirrors at every booth. And especially women didn't want to look at those mirrors. They didn't want to look at themselves. They were embarrassed. Today, when I walk in those rooms, the same women are putting makeup on, using that mirror in that way, having a relationship with themselves they never had before. And so watching that change is amazing. Um, <laughs> I hope I get excused for this, but for a, couple, a few months, I thanked uh, Will Smith for smacking Chris Rock because that was the conversation that went on in that room and people arguing their point. And like, I'm not, I came in to use two bags, but I'm going to use one because I got to get my point across and what I think should happen. And then from there, the conversation about, well, I want to talk to tonight's staff, the night staff about it. So even less use. So having that community in that environment, a feeling of I have a place to go. I just remembered minutes ago that um, before, I came, before I came here, I went to the office the other day and there was a guy sitting there who had one of the most difficult overdoses we've had since we opened the OPC. And I happened to be in there and I sat down waiting for him to come out and it took, it felt long for us because the way we respond now is so fast. And when he came out of it, I was sitting there, he, I was on the floor with him and he looked at me and said, what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, well, you know, you, were, you overdosed, I'm just here holding some space for you. And he, he, he was, you know, he kind of went through a lot of feelings. And he is a person who relapsed during COVID. And he said, I, I don't want to do it differently. I want to change. All right. But I'm not really changed yet. I'm going to come back a few more days, but I'm going to change. And then I didn't see him for a while. I saw him for a little bit, then he was gone. And the other day I walked in, he's sitting in the front, just sitting there, you know, in, inside, but, but by the coffee spot. And, and you know, I said hello to him. I said, how you doing? He says, I'm sitting here. And I said, okay, is everything all right? He said, yeah, I get to sit here now and not use the OPC. Like, it's kind of cool. I want to just sit here. And he does it for him to feel proud that he can actually be in our space, know what he needs to do if he wants to get drugs, but not use the OPC. And then well, I said, well, what is it you want to do? And he said, well, I'm going to work for you. So I'm waiting for his resume. <laughs> Hopefully I'll hire him. Um, but like those are the moments, right? Those are the, the, the anecdotal moments of, of these relationships we have with people that are just beautiful. And as I go through this, I, I want you to please remember who I'm talking about. Um, and when I go through numbers. But when I think of data, I see these beautiful, kind-hearted people who just want to be different, who want an opportunity to live. And you said it, dead, dead users don't, don't, don't recover. 100%. And I hear it every day. Send them to detox, send them to treatment. 100% of our participants have been to detox and treatment multiple times. It doesn't mean it doesn't work. But we're clear that it doesn't work the first time for most people. And for many people, it doesn't work the sixth or seventh time. But if they're not alive, they don't get the eighth time. And that's what we offer. We offer them an opportunity to go back again. Right? We offer them an opportunity to go back without having to be mandated. But to go on their own when they're re ready and willing. 
to re, to, what we see with our participants is this shift when we start talking about why do you use? And we ask them, why do you use? I'm a loser, I'm a bum, I'm lazy. No, let's talk about, let's get to the core of why you use. I have a mental health condition. I've, been, I've, I've dealt with some trauma. I don't know how to handle this. I have many, many good friends. My brother's 30 years in, in recovery. And um, one of the things I would, he and I have these nice little battles sometimes. And I tell him, my concern with your group is when you meet, you tell people, you bring up Bob and Bob says, I stopped using and I own a house and 2.5 kids and a dog and a whatever. And if you stop using, you could get it too. And then Bob stops using and he's in his living room shaking. Where's my dog and where's my 2.5 kids and where's this house that I was supposed to get? And no one talks about what, what else happened. Bob didn't just start use, stop using and his life changed. It takes much more work than that. And some people will self-medicate as long as it takes. And some people will, will manage their recovery the way they manage it. Right? And so we have people who used to use heroin or what have you or crack cocaine who now drink at a bar and it's okay. So there's judgment within that. Um, I'll say quickly, we talk about the crack house statute. It's simple in many ways. The minute you take cocaine and call it crack, you're talking about black and brown and poor white people. It's intentional. Why isn't it called the cocaine statute? All right? We look at those things. There's an impact within that. Um, I want to talk about, quickly about some relationships. I like to say, and it feels good to say this because this is my own experience in life, our number one relationship is with the NYPD. <laughs> and um, uh, it's important to say it. If it's truth, it's truth. And I'll give you a little bit, I'll give you some quick examples. So when we were going to open a site, we wanted the commissioner of the police department to put a public statement, and they laughed at us, but we tried. Um, because, you know, they said, listen, you're in two, two neighborhoods, two precincts. Let's just stick to those two. So, okay. I'll back, I have to back up a little bit. You also got four of the five DAs to sign off. And what that means is it supports the police because if the police were to go ahead and make these arrests anyway, the way they were making them before, for someone using drugs, the DAs already told you they're not going to prosecute. So let's not waste our time. Let's figure out a better way to work with folks. Initially, the police department was a little confused. We had a decent relationship. This is very different. We, we talked to them about the difference being, you know, I actually went to their book and read what they, what they say they do to the, for the community and, and reviewed it with them. I said, here's the piece where you're supposed to serve people who are in need. And here's what we'd like you to do. Instead of arresting them, go to them and offer them an opportunity to come to our site. And they started to do it. And it really started to work. And then they had a problem because when they would go up to them, sometimes they would take off and run thinking they're going to be arrested. The police came back to us and asked us to create a card. We didn't come up with this idea. They did. To create a card so they can hand to a user while they're using and say, listen, I'm here to escort you or tell you, don't use it in public. Go to On Point and use that On Point. And it worked. And it's still working. Uh, many of my staff and I uh, went over and spoke to them during their roll call, get information and updates, check in on each other. Uh, when Kaylin and the team went to speak to uh, some of the, both precincts and offered them an opportunity to come look at the site, we were shocked. Every officer in roll call came at different times. And it's important to see the site, and I hope you watch the video, because taking a look at what happens inside is very different. And when those police officers came and visited, it changed their minds completely. 
and they saw the need for these sites. They also spend time outside, and they see people leaving outside and getting in a van to go to detox, right? So it's, 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 it's our responsibility to respond to the need. As harm reductionists, we don't talk about treatment and detox. We don't. As harm reductionists, our participants talk about treatment and detox every day. They talk about it. Shoving it down their throat is not the answer. Loving on them in a compassionate, in just a, a beautiful, fluid way is what works. And that's when we see the change. And that's when we see them asking for more. Um, so our relationship with NYPD is amazing. We, I just met with seven NCOs to talk about what's happening in the community. One of the biggest uh, changes we had recently was led by the NYPD. Uh, we had an issue in a park. We didn't know about it. They found out about it. In the past, I got a call from, the, um, uh, from, from a captain who said in the past they would send a team in and basically arrest everybody in this, uh, in this uh, encampment. Instead, they asked us to go. They said, we're having overdoses. We're not going to send our team. You guys go. We met with our team. We switched from 9 a.m. to 8 to 6 a.m. opening overnight. Our outreach and public safety team immediately changed their schedule and went to the park at 6 a.m. Our drop-in center team opened at 6 a.m. and our overdose prevention center opened at 6 a.m. Led by the captain in the precinct. <laughs> Not us. They thought we did. I'm like, quite frankly, I didn't know. <laughs> if it wasn't for the commanding officer, we wouldn't even know this was an issue. That's a partnership. That's what can happen. That's a relationship with the NYPD almost nobody has. And why is, why is, what's the difference between San Francisco and New York in that way? There doesn't have to be, and we know that. Um, quickly with parks, you heard on the video, 13,000 syringes a month collected in one park every month. A month after we opened, 1,000 syringes. Where's the other 12,000? They're with us. That quickly. That same park across the street from our Washington Heights corner project site, our Washington Heights site rather, there's a small park in the corner for children. It's been closed for years. Simultaneously, eight months after we opened, that park opened for the first time in the summer and children were there playing. And when some of our participants would go into that park to use the bathroom or something, the park would call us and say, hey, one of your guys are here, do you mind coming over? Not call the police like they used to. That's a relationship. Um, <laughs> Fentanyl, we have, we have a spectrometer, we, we test. We'll see 5 to 9%, 5 to 9%. We're getting as high as 23%. 23. That means when people, and, and, and of all these uh, tests we did, only one person once said, I won't use. When they see those high rates, they say, I'm still going to use, but I'm going to go inside and work with the staff and use, use it differently, take test shots. What we know is getting even more dangerous today it's because of what's happening with the drug supply, you're almost going to need OPCs. Because if you're not there in the moment someone overdoses, that's it. We've had a number of overdoses in the OPC that if it didn't happen in front of us, they would die. And last, and two weeks ago, we lost two of our daily participants who overdosed during times we were closed, who didn't have to die. But we, we, we're not open 24 hours a day yet. Um, my favorite data point is zero. No one's died, zero. 2,300 participants registered. 54,000 utilizations. 54,000 times people use drugs in our space, not in the community, the way the community asked for. We want less use in the street, less use in our public parks. 54,000 times. 
over 700 overdose interventions. And the earrings I'm wearing are naloxone, which we use in the room to, over, to reverse an overdose. So I'm wearing two lives in my ears today, and I'm proud to do that. Um, and and um, yeah. <laughs> and who are these people? Beautiful mothers, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, kind-hearted folks who want a chance, who want a shot, many who are friends of mine, many who use harm reduction for many years to get their lives together. Um, and I'll end it with a couple of other things. You guys talk about the New York model, and I really hear what you mean by the New York model. <laughs> Everywhere else I go, and they say the New York model, they're talking about uh, uh, how we do it and the structure and everything. When I hear it in San Francisco, I, I, it's like I have the, the New York Jewish moment, like, aha, I get it. <laughs> right? And so when, when you guys talk about the, the New York model, you're talking about safety for, for your staff and for the city and for the uh, health, uh, health department staff. And there is an opportunity to maintain that because here's the, here's the thing about the New York model. Yes, currently we, I, the staff, the exec team, I mainly, um, at that point are the ones that were at risk if something would have happened. The sky didn't fall, Paul, right? Nothing, all these things they said were going to happen didn't happen. We've had those visitors, by the way, those visitors who were going to come and shut us down, and they said, you guys are amazing, off the record. This is amazing. What you're doing, I have nothing to say, but can we have some guardrails? I'm like, sure, we could get from a bowling alley. We'll put them up if that's what works for you. What do we do to make sure we do it correctly? Correctly? You just said it was great, right? All of this, the things that people said would happen and what would happen and, and how I was going to get arrested and we were going to get shut down, it's a different time. And while the president and Raul Gupta, the head of ONDCP, isn't talking about enough about what they're going to do to get it right, they're definitely not talking about shutting it down either. And we need to focus on that. So yes, the New York model offers that opportunity. And in fact, right now we're negotiating the New York model to say, use your opioid dollars. They're not tax levy money. They cannot put your jurisdiction at risk. They're part of a lawsuit for you to use at your discretion. That's what that money is. It has nothing to do. I had a city official say to me, if we use this money to fund you, it's an, illegal, it's, a legal, it's an illegal activity and we could be defunded. Yeah, legally you can. The government's not gonna defund a city like, like San Francisco or New York. But here we go. Opioid settlement dollars have nothing to do with that pot. They're the safest money to use. In fact, they were created for us and for our people who are dying unnecessarily. So you have the opportunity to do that. I'll say one more thing, two more things, and I'll get out of your way. In addition to that, since we opened, 1.7 million units of hazardous waste have been collected by us. Again, not in the streets, in two neighborhoods. In New York City, when the city responds to an overdose, it's an average cost of $30,000. 30000 between the amount of Narcan they use and keeping them in the hospital for most of the day, the other services they provide while they're in the hospital, who shows up to the overdose, fire department, police department, EMS, et cetera. And if we look at that number, we called an ambulance 10 times. That's it. Nothing to do with the overdose, had to do with other conditions we were concerned about. So roughly 690 times $30,000. That's how much we saved in two neighborhoods in one year. 
It cost us $4.3 million to run them both for 24 hours a day. I mean, the money's there, sitting there. That's the reality of the work we do. That's the reality of the outcomes uh, we can have in this work. And so the last thing I'll say is this. I was asked earlier, what advice would you give San Francisco? And it was kind of funny. I said, just be San Francisco. And, no, and, I'll, tell you, and I'll tell you what I mean. I mean this. Like, this is why I start off by saying so many people thought San Francisco did it first. Because you, <laughs> I can't curse. You guys are bad, you know. Um, you know, that's what you've been known as, like taking that risk and being out there a little extra and being and going for things a little differently and taking, to, you know, going out there and representing your communities the way no other city has, really. So when people get confused and say, I thought San Francisco opened first, it's almost a compliment <laughs> when they say that. So my advice to San Francisco is be San Francisco, step up and do what you know is right and is in your hearts, represent your people. Love on them the way they want to be loved on. And, and be San Francisco, man. Uh, thank you. Thank you so, so, so much. Gosh. You know, Sam, coming from outside, um, I wish San Francisco was what it used to be. And sometimes I worry that it's not. Um, and it's the saddest thing that I feel like I'm watching uh, being an elected official in the city. Uh, because we used to be that way, and we used to have that fame, and we used to treat people that were suffering or coming from places where they weren't accepted in a welcoming way with love and acceptance. And we're not, we're not, the, we're not like that in the same way anymore. We're not, it, it's a changed city. I don't know if you saw the viral video yesterday with a woman experiencing homelessness being hosed down by a business owner, but we have crises going on in our streets and we don't have a, a, a clear plan for how we're gonna deal with that and, and, and it's a shame. So uh, just be San Francisco. I wish, I, I wish we could be San Francisco about a decade ago. That's what I wish we could be. I'm not sure we're the same place anymore and it breaks my heart. Um, having said that, um, there's, a, there's a few things I wanna say before I turn it over to my colleagues and any of the city staff that wanna ask questions. Um, you know, it, it, as a supervisor who's been working in the District 9 office as a legislative aide or as now the supervisor for the past uh, 13 years, um, I usually create creative solutions to problems and try to you know, uh, jam them down the throat of the mayoral administration that is available at the time. This is the first time I had nothing to do with creating the model. And I'm just saying, why aren't you implementing the own model that your, your Department of Health created? The mayor was one of the first people to visit New York, to visit you, to meet you. She actually, well, first she visited um, Vancouver and she wasn't pro safe consumption sites. And then she visited, just like you said, many people do. And her entire mind changed. And she came back as one of the leading advocates to open these sites here in San Francisco. And then her Department of Public Health, uh, under the direction of Dr. Hillary Cunnins, who we stole from you in New York City, <laughs> and, and, and luckily brought here to San Francisco. And her team created a plan to open these 12 
wellness centers uh, that was shared with all of us on the Board of Supervisors. I was like, fantastic, I'm totally for it. Do it, I want one in my district. I'll take on my constituents that are against it and I will change their minds, let's do this. And then all of a sudden, they pulled the brakes, no explanation, can't get much info from anyone and no plans, no alternative plans. So we're just gonna see the, 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 the drug use continue in the streets. Um, we're gonna see the used needles, uh, a baby overdosed in a park from fentanyl in San Francisco. No plans, no plans for how to deal with it. So here you have three supervisors, Supervisor Dorsey, Supervisor Preston and myself, who don't always agree on everything saying we will take on the naysayers in our own neighborhoods, <laughs> we will find you the money, we will back you up 25,000% just to open these things like your own Department of Public Health says you should. Um, and we hear the city attorney says no. So I go to the city attorney and I say, Sam Rivera hasn't been indicted? He's out there openly, you know, saying, look what I'm doing, President Biden. Look what I'm, you know, doing, Attorney General of New York, who I'm not even sure who that is, you know. And, and, and he's operating. What are we so afraid of here in San Francisco? Um, the Biden administration and the Newsom administration, and I'm willing to bet my life on this, are not going to throw San Franciscans in jail or cut off our federal funding because we are saving lives and stopping open-air drug use. They're just not gonna do it. And instead, we're cowering in fear and refusing to do the job that we know all the scientific literature that Alex Kral went through that's been, that's been done over 35 years shows saves lives, reduces crime, improves street conditions, reduces drug use. Uncon, you know, uh, uncontested evidence over 35 years. It makes no sense. So what we've heard from our city attorney is that he's okay with the New York model. Yet, as far as I know, there is no evidence that we're doing anything right now to open up the New York model. Feel free, any of the city staff who know otherwise, to chime in and tell me that I'm wrong. I'm happy, and if I'm wrong, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll never be thr so thrilled to be wrong. So Dr. Cunnins, Commander Fung, Ann Pearson, our city attorney, Tom Polino, or Ann Dunning, if we are actively trying to open wellness centers right now as we speak, please chime in and tell me that I'm wrong. But as far as I can tell, we're not doing anything. Anyone wanna, wanna prove me wrong here? Anyone from any of our city attorney? Any of our departments? Good afternoon, Anna Duning, uh, the mayor's budget director. And so my understanding is yes, the mayor is in support of the New York model. So our next step is to work with the city attorney's office to other understand how the city attorney defines that model, figure out the structure, and to make it happen. And so we just need to get into the specifics of the definition that will allow us to move forward. And that needs to be an ongoing discussion with the city attorney's office. Okay, and then just one question about that. We operated an, um, a site that allowed some consumption on the site. Uh, I don't know if it was officially a wellness center or safe consumption sites for 11 months in the Tenderloin. We saved 
300, or I didn't, Hillary Cunnins and her staff saved 333 lives with that model. It's been open for 11 months. You're telling me that entire time you haven't been talking to the city attorney's office to figure out how we could keep going? Um, admittedly, this is not my area of expertise, so I may turn it over to Hillary, Dr. Cunnins or the city attorney. Um, but my understanding is when we opened that center, we were not, it, it wasn't initially proposed and planned necessarily to be a safe consumption site. And the model we are talking about now with wellness hubs is a more proactively defined as a safe consumption site. So there are some nuances there that again, I would refer to the city attorney's office about what, what that difference is. Um, but that's, that's my understanding. Okay. I'm just going to be real honest here because it's my, it's my MO. It's who I am. It's, it's what I do. I don't know how to be any other way. I would love to work with you to open these up. I don't want to be fighting each other. I want to be working, holding hands, all of us, everyone there, plus this board of supervisors holding hands and working and opening us these together. Instead, what I've been getting is the runaround. And this is not new. On Point has been open for over a year. The Tenderloin um, Navigation Center was, or the Tenderloin Drop-In Center, which was technically a wellness hub, was open for 11 months. The legal terrain has not changed. I've read the case law. I've read the memos. I'm a lawyer. Nothing has changed in the legal terrain. And yet, you guys put a slamming brakes on DPH opening these sites. So you've been giving us the runaround. And the reason that we're having this very public hearing and that we're not going to stop, uh, we're going to go to New York, we're going to bring the press, we're going to you know, be opening these sites, we're finding a site in the Tenderloin, uh, because the supervisors are having to do the work of the executive branch, since the executive branch is not doing this work, which they're supposed to be doing. We're, we're not going to stop until those centers are open and saving lives in our district because there is no other way to save these lives and to improve street conditions. There just isn't. You cannot arrest your way out of this situation. Just like Sam Rivera said, even with our new, you know, happy to prosecute city attor uh, district attorney, we don't have enough room in our jails to arrest our way out of this problem. So... <coughs> We would love to hold hands with you and to do this, but we are so sick of being given the runaround. And that's what you've been doing. And that's why I didn't ask any of you to speak today. And that's why I brought Sam and Alex in from outside, because you speak and you say nothing and you say the same things over and over and over again, and nothing happens. And you slam the brakes on the community. So no more. We're talking about this openly. We're talking about it publicly. The city attorney says he's for the New York model, then let's open the New York model. You've got the architect right here. Ask him any questions that you need to ask him, and then let's open it. This isn't rocket science. We can do it tomorrow. We have a site that we can literally do it tomorrow in the mission. So with that, thank you. With that, does any of the city staff, including the city attorney, have any questions for the architect of the New York model? that you say we accept here in San Francisco? Uh, Deputy Chief Fung? Hi, I do have questions, but they're more of a matter of, of your operations. Say that again? I do have some questions about operations of the New York model. Fantastic. Yeah. 
What level of care is your staff trained to? Oh, great. You got me in trouble. My staff's watching. <laughs> they're, they're trained to respond at the level of an RN. Are they nurses? No, not all of them. Some are. Okay. Mm -hmm. At what point does your staff activate 911 for an overdose? Never. Never? Never. That's their guidance, the official No, guidance. their guidance is to use it if needed. We haven't had to do it once. Yeah, well, that's... I think we need to come to our... We need to recognize what, it, what you're actually doing because... Um, the, the Teal Center was the number one user of 911 services in 2022. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, we are the fire department, we are the responders. Mm -hmm. We don't set the policy, right. right? And we understand that it's been safe. Nobody's died there, nobody's died in New York. And this gentleman says no one has died at all in any mm -hmm. um, site in the world. So. It seems indisputable, but yet we're being activated, and maybe we need some instruction on how to set our own policy. Definitely, yeah. So I have some data that I had prepared for other reasons. And let me just let me make clear. You asked, when do we call 911 to support with an overdose? The answer is never. Yeah, I just want to be clear. So we call 911. A Narcan other... reversal? Narcan reversal, you don't call 911? Never. In fact, we don't use Narcan. We don't use nasal Narcan. We only use intramuscular, and we only use it 15% of the time. So you see, people have been trained wrong, especially depending on where you're working. If you respond, like a fire department responds to an overdose, they have to go straight to nasal and sometimes injection as well. For us, we're there the moment the on, on the onset of the overdose. So we respond immediately enough to take enough of the opioid off the brain to bring enough oxygen, and they're fine. So we've never, we've, we, like I said before, we called the ambulance 10 times, but it didn't have to do with the overdose, had to do with other factors, maybe low, low breathing, things like that, where we needed more support. That sounds fantastic. My questions then and my, my concerns would be, do you have a medical director that oversees your staff? Yes. That medical director is a physician? Yes. Okay, so that person inherits the liability if anything should go wrong? Yes. Okay. And every member, every person who comes in to utilize the site signs a, a, a waiver for us to respond if, if there's an emergency. And again, we are the responders. We don't set the policy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the San Francisco EMS agency. Mm -hmm. um, so some, some data that I had prepared was that um, the overall 911 call volume between 2021 and 2022 went up. 8.4% um, and went up from 178,000 calls annually to 192,000 calls mm -hmm. annually. Now, our dispatches for overdoses from 2021 to 2022 went up 26.5%. And um, that's an 1,100 1, mm -hmm. um, increase. Right. And 530 of those calls were at the Tenderloin Center. So this is a big concern for the fire department because we are, we do EMS response. So right. if we could find a way to mitigate that, fix that, I think that would go yeah. a long way. Yeah, I, you know, thank you for that. Because what we know is the fire department by us, who we have a, I'm, I failed to talk about the fire department. I have a family member who's gonna yell at me about that too. <laughs> Man, having a rough day. Um, but the fire department on us is very grateful. 
they, that's 700 less, fewer calls they receive because we responded to 700 overdoses in their stead, right? Um, so that impact of police department and fire department are very uh, grateful that we have the services we have, especially um, the difference. When we respond to an overdose, like I said, we're only using naloxone 15% of the time. So they're not going, being hospitalized. They're not spending half a day in a hospital if you use four milligrams or more. All of those factors come in. Uh, the fire department needs to stop fires, right? Like that's the way we see it and, and do other, other emergencies. But we have the ability, folks standing in this, sitting in this room have the ability to be trained and respond and keep people alive. So, so yeah, it's a great relationship to have. And I could see that number dropping tremendously when you open. Yeah, and, and to be sure, the San Francisco Fire Department also um, collaborates with the Health Department and the Department of Homeless and Supportive Housing. Okay. And we have the Street Crisis Response right. Team, Street Wellness, and Street Overdose Response Team. And we do take people, we were taking people to the Tenderloin Center. Oh, so we okay. are supporters of That's it. That's wonderful. But we just want to make sure that it is, <laughs> does not adversely affect yeah. our, our call volume. Yeah, okay, thank you. Sure. One last thing on that. So, so the reason why 911 at the TLC has been called is because it is actually is a policy of DEM which opened the center. And so it's not because of the need that was needed by the TLC to actually to call that. In fact, they were, they, they were not in favor of that particular thing. And as we hear from New York, it, it, it is not necessary. And, and as we hear from the scientific data, from peer-reviewed data from across the world, this is not, it is not necessary. I'm aware of that. I'm, that's why I said it's, I think it's a policy, policy issue. And we're exactly. the responders. We don't make the policy. Exactly. And I would just add that that's why the cost of the center was so out extreme and outrageous and will not be the cost of the centers. We, I know we have some questions about the, co the cost of all that, but I, I just wanted to give a chance. I, I'm going to turn it over to Supervisor Safayin Dorsey in a second, but I just wanted to give a chance to anyone else um, on the city side to, to make any comments or ask any questions. I don't know if Dr. Cunnins wants to, to mention, I don't know why we had that policy to call the, the fire department, especially uh, when you know, you were at the site and you are a MD. <laughs> Thanks, got the, got the technology down. Thanks. Um, thank you, Supervisor Ronan. I think as um, uh, Simon Peng and you heard from Dr. Kral as well, it's, it's uh, not DPH, it was not DPH policy. I think it highlights and thank you, Sam Rivera, so much for your, you know, for speaking about that. I think that these are some of the procedural issues that jurisdictions, including our own, need to work through and think through carefully. Um, safety of people using the site is, is paramount. And I think that their uh, safety for participants was, was certainly uh, top of mind for all of us. And I think we collectively learned a lot there. Thank you. I don't see any more questions. Oh, yes, please. Good afternoon. I just want to thank um, Executive Director Rivera and Dr. Kral for this, uh, their presentation. Obviously, the um, evidence-based data has overwhelmingly um, been very positive in, in saving lives. So. 
Uh, one question I did have was, how, this is for uh, Sam, how, how did you work with NYPD in the department to um, message the community for those concerned in the community about placement of these locations and how uh, potentially what impact it would have on the community? I know clearly you indicated that um, they were uh, you know, persuaded after seeing the incredibly positive impact in the community and reduction of public use and syringes and um, uh, in the community, but how did you work with NYPD in that regard? Yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, the way, so our two sites were selected, so it wasn't, we didn't, we didn't build them after. We basically, uh, we were the, the organization that was ready as far as structurally and relationship with landlord, et cetera. So we were already, we had somewhat of a relationship with the police department. We would always have to work with them, but it was a, it was a tough, a tough battle because they have what they need to do. They want to serve the community, people using drugs, and we would go back and forth all the time. This created an opportunity for us to meet really in the middle and talk about safety, what's really safety for a community. Um, and, you know, New York has been exposed many times, you know, their police department. So having that relationship, uh, going to roll call and talking to them, um, they, it, it, you know, so... It was something sort of put on them, <laughs> I will say. Like, we didn't do it, but the commissioner and their bosses were like, they're opening in these two locations. These are the two precincts. Figure it out in a way. Um, but then we, we met and, and we talked about it. And I think right from the start, the first day we opened, a lot of police were there. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is terrible. <laughs> but, but when we spoke to them, they said, well, we're actually here because we're worried about protesters and media, we want to help you guys. And it was kind of weird. It was like, okay, that's kind of cool. And they were right. It got a little wild, and, and they dealt with it. Um, but then we had to talk to our participants that a lot of police here, they're not here for that, for, for any other reason. And they also wanted to see. They wanted to really see what this was about. So I never saw so many white shirts in my life in New York. That's a, but it was, it was okay. We went, and, and then we started sharing personal numbers and having these conversations all the time. And when they would hear something, they would call us right away. We had to check each other very early and often. Um, and then, you know, showing them the inside and how it works and the humanity to it. And then we talked to them. A lot of these guys are from the community, these men and women, these officers. And they talked about their own personal experience and family members who use drugs and what it means and how it impacts them. And it helped them learn how to talk to their own children about drugs and family as, as well. So the relationship has grown and, and really, I have to tell you, in the most mind-blowing way. Um, we, get, uh, we have an MCO who brings new, new, new officers in all the time. And it changed for the participants. The participants see police officers walk in, there's no worry where it used to be an issue before. And they see them walking with me, they're like, oh, there was Sam, he must, they must be okay. And we walk through the building and we do a tour, and it's okay. And, and people use in front of them if they walk into the OPC, that's what's going to happen. Um, and so that relationship now has changed it for the participants, for me, which is most important. Uh, there were times when, like weeks after we opened, I would pull up to the office and there'd be a police car in the corner with their lights on. And I would call my contact. I'd say, can you tell them to turn the lights off? You know, it could be a deterrent. People don't want to come in. And they would turn their lights off. So that relationship grew. Uh, the police see the benefit. Um, you know, I'm sure there's one or two in there that still think what we're doing is, is it, you know, they're not fans of. But it's impacted their work tremendously. And as mentioned before, the, the, the fire department, police department, they're not getting all the calls they were receiving before, which could be, very stressful. And so there's that reduction 
and a better interaction between them and a community. Thanks for that question. And Sam, um, I, I really will turn this over, but I, uh, we really um, wanted to have one of the captains of yeah. the stations uh, where Sam, in the two places where On Point is, come and talk to you uh, himself today. Mm -hmm. There happens to be a very uh, huge strike going on of healthcare workers right on the border of the two precincts, and so they're in, they're overwhelmed and worried. But I'm sure. I, I guess I want to ask you if we could set up oh, yeah. um, some meetings between those oh, yeah, captains definitely. and SFPD. Definitely. And I, I know yeah. Supervisor Dorsey and I were really interested yeah. in doing. And that. And I talked to you when when we were opening. So I'm so glad you said that. I, I missed this. It's very important. Though the two precincts also spoke to. Canadian police. Oh, so they had that conversation. So they want to do the same for anyone else who wants to open to talk about their experience in working with us. Um, yeah, so that's a great way to do it too. But they will set up a Zoom call, whatever you need. Definitely. Right. And when you visit, they'll come and be there as well. Okay, great. Thank you. Hi, good, af good afternoon, supervisors, and thank you very much, Mr. Rivera and Dr. Krell, for the presentation. Um, I really appreciate it. My name is Diana Oliva Rocha. I'm the policy uh, director for the chief of police, and I work really closely with uh, with uh, acting deputy chief Fong. Um, first of all, I just want to say hello, relative, and thank you very much for um, the work that you're doing. Because I do think uh, I really appreciate how you ended up highlighting that this is about love and this is about second chances. And at the end of the day, making sure that we keep our city safe right. and that we keep our streets safe and more importantly, our families, whether you're on the street or you're anywhere inside a home. Um, so I do appreciate that. And I also wanna acknowledge everybody in the audience that works every day, uh, day in and day out, some partners with the San Francisco Police Department and others that have been doing this work individually for a long time. So thank you for that. I do have a couple of questions for you. Uh, first of all, I just want to acknowledge and underscore that we'll pick up the invite to New York at Please any come. time yeah. <laughs> because I do think it's important for our officers and really our command leadership to be able to see and witness what exactly the model looks like. Uh, we're happy to continue working with our city partners and trying to see if we could actually see a hands-on experience. Yeah. It's important for our officers uh, in order to be able to put sort of a, you know, a a picture in, in reality of what this looks like. The second comment, uh, or more of a question, is really asking, first of all, Dr. Kraut, if you could end up citing maybe any um, articles or evidence around the law enforcement sort of impact. Uh, I know you referenced a couple of articles. We're curious if the literature really documents how law enforcement sees the impact of some of the centers, and if there's anything else that you could elaborate on that. And then I have a couple of other questions for Mr. Rivera. Uh, that's a really good question, and I don't believe there has been a study specifically of law enforcement officials to ask them about the perceptions of it. Um, I know that from ethnography, ethnographic studies, there have been studies where they've shown that, uh, I, even I know, for example, for the unsanctioned site, which was a secret site in the U.S. for, for a few years, they even had um, law enforcement. They, they had people show up on their doorstep and say, "Look, I, 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 I was, you know, I'm, I'm here. I, I, I'm told I can use drugs here, uh, you know." And they're like, "Well, I don't know who told you that." Well, actually, a police officer, two blocks away, told me that, which was which was kind of interesting to the program because they were underground and they thought the police didn't know about the program. And not only did they know about it, but they actually 
um, they actually referred people to it, much like um, I think Sam talked about in New York. But I'm not aware of any uh, studies of police uh, officers specific or, uh, specifically about their perceptions about this, and I think that's a really good idea to do Great. that. Thank you. Look forward to studies, if possibly that sparks anything. Uh, Mr. Rivera, just a couple of other questions. You mentioned, um, and I think this is really important, that your number one partnership was law enforcement. Can you talk a little bit more? I know we've already asked you a question, but I'm curious about what that really means for a service provider, someone leading this work. Yeah. How, does that, how does becoming the first partnership uh, kind of look like, and how did that happen? Yeah, um, we, you know, we knew it would be crucial for that relationship to, um, to be healthy. Um, but we didn't we didn't expect the the reaction and uh, the real the, the, the real partnership like asking us do we know about an issue happening here uh, for instance we do a bad batch alert so if we see that people are overdosing to a certain bag of, of, of heroin as an example we alert the community and we started to alert the police too because of how they dealt with it. It didn't mean it led to arrest. It literally met, led to them talking to people. Like we watched police officers walk up to a group of people and talk to them about their use and talk to them about where they should go instead. And, you know, community policing in the way it should be done where, you know what, here's the option for you. Now you have a place you can go. Uh, I just had a meeting two weeks ago with a few MCOs um, who are having some issues in the community and wanted to talk to me about it because there might be some changes and they didn't, they wanted to make sure we were still okay in the relationship. When has that like ever happened in my 30 years? Um, but it was, and it was fine. And then we, we monitor each other and we talk to each other about how to do it. They had a large recruitment, new, re, new rookies come in. They told us you have to come and, and, and talk to them again because they're coming in from, from, from training and they have their ideas. Um, so it'd be great for them to talk to you right away. Um, but for me, it really grew because they saw what it did for them. And that's what they told us. Police officers told us it's easier now. I don't have to deal with somebody the way I used to. I can actually talk to people. Um, and it's, a, you know, it's tough. I'm sure it's tough work. It's got to be on the ground. I mean, we're in Harlem, East Harlem and, and Washington Heights. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I also want to tell people before you open, because I know you will, that it's important to capture what the front of whatever space it is looks like, and then look at it after you open. And I pushed that really hard before we open because we're on 126th Street in East Harlem. Beautiful, loving area, but that one block is a fairly hot block. It's been like that for years. So I knew that after we opened, they would say, well, look what you did, all right? So it's important to capture that before we open. If you look at our other site, 180th and Amsterdam, very quiet. So we, didn't, we don't bring the theory that more drug dealers come and we bring all this. It's just not true. Because if that was the case, why, why do we have two sites that look very different? So it's really about where you're located and what it brings. And I even said to someone here, it'd be great because my understanding is you're looking at a completely new site to look at what, what impacts it has in, those, in, that, in that community. And I think what you're going to learn is that it doesn't bring more of the negativity. And I think when the police saw that, it mattered to them. Like, wait a minute, we don't have more drug dealers. We don't have more of this stuff we were told to be prepared for. And then um, it, it grew our relationship. And, and communication was key. We spoke all the time. We still speak all the time. Um, like, for me to be able to 
email a chief and say, can you present today? And can I text you if you can present today? And apologizes because they're not available. That's a partnership to me, a very healthy one. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, we're looking forward to being able to partner. Hopefully we'll continue moving forward. Just in behalf of Chief Scott, just wanted to say thank you. Thank you. And then also share that we're absolutely 100% in on something like this. Oh, that's amazing to hear. Thank you so much. Um, Budget Chair Dunning. Uh, hi, Mr. Rivera. Thanks for being here. So I, I work on the city's budget. I know you touched on this briefly, but yeah. could you just say one more time, what is the funding source for the center and about how much does it cost to operate annually? Uh, you guys are asking great questions because I, I didn't talk enough about that. Um, we have, we've, been, we've been having to use our own money, so we've been able to fundraise. Um, the city has not paid a dime for what we're doing. Uh, so we were able to get a few foundations and a couple of other people who lost uh, family members to overdoses to, to donate a nice amount of money. Um, we are at risk for closing actually pretty soon because we're out of money. And as the opioid settlement fund is coming through, we're having a very similar conversation in New York City about how to fund us through those, through, through those dollars. Those dollars were part of a lawsuit that were for our people, and that's where it needs to go. Um, and so that's where we're heading now. So if, if we operated both programs 24 hours a day, it's about $4.3 to operate. Uh, right now, with the schedule we're using, is $1.4 but it's not enough. Uh, what we know is when we close, uh, we lose people because they don't have access to the site. Uh, but yeah, that's roughly what it costs. Oh, okay, um, last question, and I did want to turn it over to Supervisor Dorsey so he can switch out with Supervisor Ingardio, who has questions as well, but. Uh, One more question for, sure. for okay. Sam. Yeah. Chief Bing. Um, so in our experience with our, with our street response teams, mm -hmm. if, we, if we found someone that was in that small window of opportunity where they wanted to change, they wanted to try treatment, mm -hmm. and I understand what you're saying, it usually takes more than one time through treatment before mm -hmm. someone might actually change. Um, we wouldn't take them to the TL Center. We'd take them somewhere else. Yep. Now, at your site, do you have treatment on demand? And if not, what are your hours where someone can actually do a referral sure. for intake? So I'll say I haven't... In my 30 years, I haven't found treatment on demand. Um, and it's not to you, it's just because I hear it a lot in the work. Um, so New York, and I know it's similar here, someone has to go to detox first and then go into treatment, right? That's, yeah, right? So That's what I mean. Withdrawal okay. management, treatment. Yep. What, what? Okay, great. So for us, and I'll give you two quick examples. When someone, and we've had people at the booth, booth being there, sitting there using and saying, this is it, I'm done, I'm tired, <laughs> I want to go to detox. And we, I mean, it's one of my favorite calls I hear on the radio, case manager to the OPC detox. And then what that means is that case manager makes the call to the detox van, van is on the way, come down, spend time with the person, what, they need, what do they need, if they're living somewhere, do we need to contact anyone, all that gets into action. Uh, once the van comes, they get in the van and leave. So what I will say that's been very interesting is harm reductionist, I'm sure it happens here, we've had this for years, issues with detox programs and treatment programs. They're like, well, as you guys again, because the person has been there so many times, or there's a lot of, there used to be a lot of attitude attached to it. We don't have that anymore. They have shifted. They're working with us very differently. 
So not only are we making a call and getting detox to show up, one of my favorite stories was a detox provider comes in the van to pick up a, 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 a participant and the participant wants to use before they leave. And in that process, they're, in a sense, in our work, supposed to let them have their last use or whatever it is before they leave. And it took three hours. And the person sat in the OPC for three hours waiting. And when the person was done, they said, okay, now I'm really ready. Like, I'm ready. I'm kind of ready. I'm almost ready. Three hours, got in the van and went to treatment, went to detox, right? And so, yes, it's important to be able to respond right away. Um, and and having, having those relationships really matter. Because when someone wants it, they should have the opportunity. Um, and like I said before, as harm reductionists, we don't talk about it. And, and I mean this. We literally don't have to because they, our participants are always talking about what that looks like for them and what it would mean for them if they had a chance. And many of our people have also had time. You know, you, you understand that, Dorsey, right? Time. They've had time. They've had time where they weren't using for a while. And they'll say that. You know, I had time. I had five years. I had two years. All right, so we're keeping you alive now. What's next for you? And that's the other piece is when you're telling a user, someone who uses drugs, excuse me, when you're telling someone who uses drugs, what is it for you? What is it you want? You, you also see that shift and they own, they own their, their journey. So it's very different. Thank you so much. Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you so much, um, Mr. Rivera. I got a question about, as part of On, um, on Point's operations, um, was it ever asked to develop or work with the NYPD in developing a good neighbor policy or security plan. And I'll just tell you, the, the, here in San Francisco several years ago when I think we were in the process of permitting uh, cannabis dispensaries, uh, one of the um, provisions adopted into the police code around that was what was called a good neighbor policy and security plan. And one of the things that was interesting to me, being out and about in the, in the district I represent over the last seven or eight months, um, was how often I would hear from people, given heightened concern about public safety, that, oh, you know what, we're, we've got a cannabis dispensary across the street, they keep an eye on the block. It was, it, it was really, I think, a successful model of how we put something in, and it mm -hmm. turns out they're good neighbors. This, this was, I think that there was a time in this building, cannabis dispensaries were viewed with as much suspicion as overdose prevention sites right. now. Um, so I'm just curious if there's any sort of thing that you've put into place that's either a policy, uh, an MOU, or a neighborhood kind of thing where you're re meeting re regularly with neighbors who may have objections. Yeah, so, so we haven't, and it's interesting. It's kind of, it's what it's been is really a constant, like, that's why I say you have to be fluid. Like, we find ourselves always adapting and working. It's, it's interesting that I don't think of it that way, but it'd be interesting to sit down and actually do it, especially as other cities or even within New York City, other, other boroughs or other areas want to open an OPC, you know, should we create a model and some kind of, uh, you know, with the NYPD, uh, which is how are you working with them? Right now it's conversation. I could keep telling you as it changes every week, um, but yeah, it'd be great to have it on paper. Uh, so for us, the unwritten rules, the unwritten relationships we have, like we take care of the front of our building. We don't let anybody hang out there. We want traffic to move on, right? That kind of thing. They know we're open. I do have, I have police call me and say, Sam, there's a couple people on the corner. They're not responding to us. We send staff out right away. Uh, we have, so, it's, so we, we have it. We don't have it formalized. But um, for instance, there's a school across the street, by the way. There's a great school directly across the street from one of our sites. 
And people try to spread rumors. They have problems. They don't know. I know the, I know the person in charge. I sent her a text. Is there a problem? She goes, not at all. And she would tell me, and somebody made up a rumor and something went wrong. Um, it's important to maintain that relationship. It wasn't intentional because if we were opening a new one, we wouldn't open across the street from a school, but we were there, they were there, it sort of happened that way. Um, but they call us, they used to call the police, they call us, the police knows they call us because sometimes in the back of their building, someone might be back there using early in the morning, they'll let us know. Our outreach and public safety team gets out there as well. And that's something when we look at our model, you know, we don't call it New York, but the on point model, it's, it's, it's outreach and public safety, all of the services we offer, case management, housing assistance, medical, low threshold medical, we're opening a pharmacy, we, we offered vaccines, COVID vaccines to the community, hepatitis, hepatitis training, uh, vaccines and treatment, uh, um, a variety of other services, uh, holistic health, which brings in a lot of community members, acupuncture, acupressure. So when people are entering the building, they're not only entering the building to utilize the OPC, they could be coming in for many other things. So looking at that model on a larger scale um, and on the block, as you're talking about, we have responsibility to the neighborhood and the block. And so it's like an unwritten thing we have, but yeah, it exists for sure. That, that actually segues into my next question, and this will be my, my last one, but it, has it been your observation that there is something, a drug dealing or um, street level drug dealing that has come in because of this, or was it there before? Is it something that you're seeing? Yeah. So I want <laughs> to, I'll tell you quickly about drug dealing in the street. You don't need to know how I know this, but... <laughs> um, uh, it just doesn't work that way. And, I, and I, you know, I'm not trying to be wise or anything. So, and it's something I said early on to the community. Like, we're in New York City. Where we are 126th Street, we're on 180th Street. Whoever's there has been there for years. That's their block. There's no way on this planet that it's going to increase by bringing in other dealers. Impossible. Impossible. Before that would happen... What we will find, and it's something we work with the police with, is some kind of war. Literally, you will find a, 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 a turf war before something like that happened. So the way I, and I'm, I haven't been in it to talk to them, but the way I really imagine it is if, if wherever we go, wherever people are, so we're, we're located where drug use exists. We're in, a, in two neighborhoods that have high, extremely high rates of drug use for many, many years. So there isn't anyone else coming in to sell more. We're addressing the issue that exists, all right? So no, we don't see an increase at all. There aren't new people on the block or things like that. But, and, and I mean it, if something like that were to happen, it would lead to literally, like, it would be really, really bad and ugly for the neighborhood. So there's no increase. Uh, it's something people try to talk about, but you know, we know, and in fact, I would say if there were, that would be a hot topic. It would, it would be all over the news. You know, they would say, all of a sudden we see all these people dealing drugs around. Uh, I look at the block, it looks the same. Same people who've been out there. We talk to the, to the police about it. Yeah, so it's not really an impact. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Supervisor Safai. Great. Sam, I'm going to ask you some, a whole bunch of questions, but some of them you've touched on. I just wanted to thank you for taking the time. I know that while you're here, you're not there. And if you're not there, then you're not able to oversee what you're doing. And it sounds like you're doing some amazing work. Um, 
So we really appreciate your time. Thank you. How many staff do you have? Currently 100 and... Whoa, 100? Yeah. All, uh, and how many are physically on site on, an, on a daily basis? Oh, the, so, if, I mean, it depends on, we have, we have a pretty large organization. So, um, at, have, at the actual, at OPC. the OPC. Yeah. That's what I mean. Oh, oh, how many staff, how many people staff the OPC? So we're about 12. And what's the capacity of that? So it's site? one to four when, when, when people are utilizing the space. It's one well, to no four. more than 48, 50 people can be in there at a time. No, in, in the actual, so, so the way it's structured is, if you're going to enter the OPC, so you could be in the drop-in center, you could be in the organization waiting to use the OPC. Once you enter the OPC, um, in the Heights, we have 12 opportunities to use. Mm. And then in Harlem, we have 16. It depends because we have a smoke room and then booths. Got it. And is it just now that I heard you say that, is your drop-in center connected to or adjacent to the OPC? Yes. Or, mm -hmm. They all work together. So yeah. why don't you tell us about how all that Sure, works sure. together. That that'll give us. A yeah, better, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I hope to come out and see it with Supervisor Ronan, but I just just for yeah. the record and, and no, definitely great, great question. So as I mentioned earlier, when you first walk in, you walk into a drop-in center, and uh, in the front we have our drug testing um, uh, person who's there who tests drugs. If you want to test before or after, our outreach and public safety team also brings in paraphernalia they find from the street to test to see what's going on. Um, right next door to that is our mental health provider, our, our staff, who our mental health team. And then you have an area there for coffee and lunch. We serve three to four meals a day, sometimes five. Um, and then we have a big television and a bathroom. And we also have, which I missed, uh, we also have showers and we wash clothes for our participants. Got it. So if someone gets there early, they want to have their clothes washed, they drop it off. They're doing a number of things in the organization while they're there. And then in the back, adjacent to the drop-in center, is the OPC. Okay, got it. Hold yeah. on one second. Okay, so how much square footage, what's the footprint of all of that, what you just described? Of, of that, it's about 2,500 square feet. The whole thing? That bottom, just Not the, the OPC, but you have the coffee, the drop-in, the drug testing, and then in the back is the 12, that's, it's only 2,500 oh, square yeah. feet? Oh, yeah. oh, wow. Okay. Um, and so what would you say is the amount of your budget that's dedicated toward the OPC? But it sounds like that's not even the right question. The right question is you ha it all works together. Right. So right. what does it take to operate that? What's the, the budget to operate so, that? So the way I look at it, it's a good question. The way I look at it is the OPC operations right now with this current schedule. In Harlem, we only open five days a week, which Got is it. not really what we want. But in that current schedule, it take, it's $1.4 million to run, just operations. <laughs> um, anybody here who runs an, a, 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 a nonprofit knows, you know, there's a lot of work around. This one, this grant gives me a little more for admin, got, that kind of it. stuff, right? A approximately. So, yeah, so, yeah, so 1.4 to run that. That's the OPC at both sides? That's the OPC combined. Yeah, combined. both. Okay. Right, yeah, good question, yeah. Um, yeah, both combined are 1.4 million. 24 hours, which is where we're heading, you know, is 4.3 million. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, 
Okay, so you talked a little bit about the informality of what you would say your protocols would be with the police department. One of the things that we did in this city, very sim not similar in the, the, the impact, but the debate and the conversation we had was um, we saw an implo uh, implosion of people living in vehicles. Mm -hmm. And so there's a big debate about putting signs up, no overnight camping, no overnight park, and all it really did was move one, from one block to another. Right. So we did, we did safe parking in this city. And, you know, we did that first in my district. And one of the things that we did is we reached out to neighborhood leaders and some of the folks that were providers and others, and we built support for that first and then rolled it out in a community meeting and, you know, about a third, a third, a third. Like, third were for it and wanted to embrace it. A third were interested and a third came with their pitchforks, like <laughs> we're never gonna allow that to come in our community and you're gonna you know, bring our community down. Um, but the PD, the fire department, health, public works, there was a, a, a design level of communication from the beginning. Do you have, did you do that or has that developed? Like do you have your neighborhood leaders and some of the surrounding folks that work in part that you can go to and say if someone were to try to denigrate or pull down or be the ones that are not in favor of or maybe that was that way and then have kind of evolved into your biggest supporters no we don't um uh when we were you know the city tried to open four sites four years ago hmm. with the hope of 130 overdose interventions so we opened two and we have 700 <laughs> um and and it didn't happen. They weren't able to pull it to pull it off. Uh, and when they when we did it this time, the city met with the com with community members. I think when you talk about pitchforks, it might have been you know a higher rate. <laughs> there wasn't a third and a third and a third. But it was also a, a very challenging time. We were coming out of COVID, still right. sort of in COVID, right. and talking about opening this. Communication was all over the place. And I also think that fewer people were showing up to some of those meetings. Uh, we weren't involved. We, we offered, but the city wanted to take care of that themselves and come from a health department approach and talk about what, what, you know, and meet with the community and talk about what it is they were planning on doing. Um, I will say that after we opened, the community felt like, wait a minute, you talked to us, then you just did it. I, we weren't at the meeting. So then we had to do some cleanup <laughs> with, the, with the community, which wasn't easy and it's still difficult right now because... Um, uh, you know, there's just some people that no matter what you do, they have their vision and their view of what's happening, uh, and it's hard to shift it, and it's sad, you know, to, to have to experience. Um, and all we could keep giving them or some, is this data and show them the impact we're having, uh, and then some will still say, nope, it's still the same, and, mm. you know, we have to manage that. Um, we know from our work that it isn't, mm. um, so, yeah, it's always a challenge for sure. So have you referenced the drug dealers and drug use ha, and, and the doctor referenced the documentable, indisputable decrease in the amount of crime. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a decrease, a significant decrease from people that, and are you documenting, when people come in, do you track their, their road or their journey from that point forward? I don't want to say to recovery because I, I don't want to misuse terms, mm -hmm. but I would hope they they're on a path to recovery mm -hmm. once they come into your site. And, are you, and have you been able to measure some of that success? Yeah, um, we're putting out a report in February, which I'll be happy to share with you guys. Um, we were blessed that one of our staff created an app called the Send App. 
And what, what that allows us to do is when a participant comes in, they get a barcode. And everything they do when they're with us gets tracked. So it's really fast. You could put it on, you know, we tape it on anything they want. Wallet, phone, anything they own, we put it on there. And so they come in, they tell us what they're going to do. They just wave it on the machine or whatever, or the phone. Um, and then they go take a shower, it gets tracked. They go, so when they meet with the case manager, the case manager says, hey, you've been busy, you're doing this, you're going to acupuncture, you're doing that, how's that going? So all of it really ends with the case management and their ability to, to navigate with, with, uh, with the participant. So our participants who come in are not just focused on the OPC. They're utilizing, we're at 85 87% of every person who's utilized the OPC has utilized other services. Mm. For active drug users, that is pretty wild. Mm. You know, if you're getting 20, 30, I know Alex knows better than me, but uh, 40, 50% would be amazing. 85, 87 is just, uh, and it's because of that relationship. And we tell them, this is your space. Like, this is built for you. What are you going to do about it? What else are you going to do? Um, And we find them using more and more. You know, when we look at money saved, we're only looking at, at, at overdose, overdose right? right? But right. imagine this. When I, first, when I first started at On Point two and a half years ago, we would talk to, I would talk to participants. They all talked about Dr. Lee. And I'm like, man, this guy, Dr. Lee, is pretty amazing. Everybody sees him. He's wonderful. Where is he located? The ER. Mm. So that's not wonderful. It's expensive. Right. They're all going to see Dr. Lee in the ER. Right. So currently, because of our drug user health hub, they're coming in and receiving medical care. They're learning how to navigate and, and negotiate with a, with a doctor. So now they're getting, they have a PCP at a local hospital. That's huge savings as well. And they're taking on their own, their own journey. They're feeling you know, positive and saying, I have a doctor now. And, and for some people, that's, no, that's, that's a normal thing you do. But for many of our people, that's, that's a win. You know, having a relationship with a doctor, you can see you know, a couple of times a year and have an annual, that's a big, that's a victory and a change in life. So decrease in emergency room visits, decrease in overdose. What about measuring decrease in drug use and or how people are approaching that? I mean, I understand, I understand exactly what you're saying and I think that's phenomenal. I just, I'm curious because those are some of the questions that we would get Mm -hmm. and that we do get. You know, this participant recycles in and out of this particular program, and you reference it yourself. People go to detox multiple times, mm-hmm. and they might go to multiple programs, mm-hmm. and there's all types of costs associated right. with that, and obviously we want to help them on their road to mm-hmm. recovery. Or do you measure any of that? Like, like you mentioned the gentleman that said, I'm going to work for you now. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I would say that, how, and, and you said he measured it in time, I mean, that might turn into many, many years of being sober. Mm-hmm. So are you measuring yeah. that? that? I guess that's what I'm so trying So it's to tough. And, and I know it's hard to measure that. Ask that guy. Ask that guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. I got to uh, bring you to every presentation. <laughs> that's uh, fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am, uh, you know, the person who's leading the evaluation in New York is, 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 uh, is Magda Serta, um, who's an epidemiologist at NYU. Um, but I, I, I'm part of that team. Um, you know, the, the, the best way epidemiologically to look at this is to really do studies of people in the neighborhood who are, and, and to assess those who are or aren't using it. So not just following the people who go to the site to see what happens to them because you want the counterpoint, like what's happening in the community if you don't go to the site, right? And so, um, so they Correct. are planning, that's, that's they are, yeah, that's part of, the, part of the planning there. In fact, 
um, the valuation there is planning on basically comparing people who go to the, just the syringe service programs, because there are a few of those there too, and comparing those to, to the people who go to um, to OP, on OPC, point, right. and then they can follow to see what happens um, with, with them with respect to so that to is happening now. That, yes, that evaluation. Right. I mean, it would yeah. make sense. It's, and that's funded. It's, re it's recently open, so it's good to hear that you all were, will try yeah. to measure. And that that's way. funded by the health department, the New York Health Department. Um, oh, that, they, the they, 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 can, they can fund the studies, so that's yep. good. Yep. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I want to add one quick thing to sure, that. Sure. That's been, and this is one of our guys, Reese, who works for us. He's been doing this new thing where we keep every piece of paper that comes into the room every time a participant fills out or says what they're going to use. Mm. And a couple of times I walked in and I see him going through paperwork and showing someone what they were using six months ago and the amount and how. And it's, it's like, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. I just started to do this thing so they can reflect because they're using less or they're using differently. They used to smoke more. Right? With fentanyl, people speedball more. It's hard to manage fentanyl. They, so what did you say they were? Speedball. So they're using a, a stimulant oh. and fentanyl, right? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> these guys were like, yeah, of course. Now, these now guys I, back here. Right? Now, now, I now I learned something today. <laughs> so, some, of the, some of the folks in the room got that right away. I, me. <laughs> <laughs> so for him to show that, was pretty was pretty amazing that he yeah. can just quickly go in and say, look, this was, and, and, and as recent as three weeks, two weeks, just say, look, last week, this is what you were using. Mm -hmm. and, and and because of the relationships in the room, he he remembered actually. He was something's changed. And then you get to have that conversation. What happened? What's different? And you know, one of the things he told me was like and he, you know, I, I like that he was sort of bragging, was like, we're different, like we're here. And they love that we're here and we're having this relationship with them. But it was a really good technique to show the person. Right, the decrease this, and, and yeah. the change in behavior. And, and I saw the reaction. So now, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just those are the, 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 the anecdotal things that happen that are really amazing. No, that's amazing. I would just ask one other thing. And you said that one of, the call, one of the calls you like to get is the one that says, you know, OPC to detox. Do you track the people after that point? Like, let's say that Unlike, person, un, I'm going to say this. Unlike treatment providers... Right. We do. <laughs> That's what I said. Unlike treatment providers. So many, if not all, treatment providers base success on the person while they're in the program, mm. not after they leave. Mm -hmm. That's not us. Harm reductionists work with people for as long as they want. Got it. They're our people for as long as they're alive. So it's very different. So it's and good. It's <laughs> that data then is, is also helpful if they're to, track, oh, yeah. to also yeah. track their behavior. Yeah. And, 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 you know, one of the things we see too, they, they sometimes like to come and show off, right? Like, look, I've been, Go I ahead. just came out of detox. I'm doing well, I'm doing this. And, and that's wonderful. We celebrate it with them. Right. You know, one of the other things is I have so many staff members and dear friends and people in this work who, if, if you hear their story, it just blow your mind. I mean, mm. blow your mind. And I won't get into the person's story too deeply, but our manager of our holistic health program, who is like the epitome of health, he's a black belt, he, I mean, you name it, he does it. And, all, and every once in a while, because he's in the holistic health program and people come in and he's so healthy and looks great, he'll get questioned. And here we go into our tool belt. Those of us with lived experience get to mm -hmm. show mm -hmm. that we, we're you, we just got here before you. That's it, that's it. That's fair. Because if you saw me when I was doing what I was doing, mm -hmm. 
And why do you think I brag to mom that I'm standing up here doing this work? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's, it's real. Change is real. Change is, change is you know, a, the, the, the ability to change and become a, per, a better person exists. And we get to do that. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Supervisor Preston. Thank you, Chair Ronan, and, uh, and, and thank you to everyone for this, uh, this conversation, with the, which I think has been a, a really positive one and, and very informative. And, and thank you, Mr. Rivera, again for all your, your work. I, I did want to uh, follow up on a couple of things. I, one is um, I think you referenced having um, an agreement. I don't know if it was a formal agreement or an informal one with the district attorney at the time that you were starting up around, I mean, obviously the, the nightmare scenario, nobody's gonna come to a site if the police and district attorney are waiting uh, to arrest people for, for using on site. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on what kind of agreements um, are in place, whether those are a formal or informal, both with police and uh, with the district attorney around non not prosecuting yep. for uh, possession, yep. uh, use on site, mm-hmm. uh, possession of paraphernalia, not just on site, but in transit to and from the site, as well as not shutting down the site. Can, yep. you, can you elaborate on what sure. agreements were in place? So I'll start with the police. It's informal. Uh, we tried. <laughs> we tried. They're like, uh, you know, it's kind of hard. It's tough for police to, to, you know, because it's hard to separate in New York precinct by precinct. It becomes a, an entire uh, city thing. Uh, so it's informal. Everybody, everyone knows it. It's an agreement. The DAs, we have five DAs in New York City. Four of the five signed off, uh, officially signed off with the city that they will not prosecute these folks who are coming, folks who are moving into these neighborhoods, moving through the neighborhood with their paraphernalia coming to our site, um, low-level uh, uh, um, drug possession, et cetera, public drug use. Instead, there will be an opportunity for them to come to us. So the point that the Manhattan DA, where we're located, said that even if it was someone who would come to us, so they have an ID, they have information, um, he would say, we're not, we're not even going to drug court. We're doing none of that. Return to On Point and let, have them contact my staff, and I'll drop everything that's here. So that's, like, that's community work. And so... Um, you know, we, we have four to five. The fifth, I won't get into. There's a place called Staten Island in New York. That, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we won't talk about that place. Um, but the, the other four DAs uh, gladly signed on. Thank you. And, and you were talking to the uh, district supervisor of District 5, but my hometown is New York City. So <laughs> All I, right. I know the dynamics. You know that place, Born huh? and raised, and I know the dynamics <laughs> of which you speak. Um, but um, I, I wanted to ask uh, if Dr. Krell could come up just for a second. I, I'm just curious whether, in terms of the arrangements with police and district attorneys in the, the other sites that have been studied, it, it, does it tend to just be a informal arrangements. I mean, these can't function if there isn't some understanding, but I, I don't know if you can address that, whether any of them are more formalized or how, the, how that's worked in other successful sites. Uh, so so um, the only government-sanctioned sites in the United States, the history of it, is, is, is the New York site, and then if we were to count the Tenderloin Center as having provided that as well. So there aren't any other sites where we can talk about what the DAs may have done or, or pol- police may have done. In other countries, 
you know, things run differently than the United States in many different ways on these, on these parts. Uh, I, I can speak, you know, the, the first um, government-sanctioned um, safe consumption site or overdose prevention site in, in North America was up in Vancouver. Um, that's now um, just about uh, 20, years, yeah, 20 years ago now. Um, that was part of the you know, mayor effort. That was part of a, um, you know, a everybody signed off on that, in both there, but also they were signed off at the time, I believe, um, by the Canadian uh, federal government as well, um, as a, uh, one of the things they did there. But, but at that point, that, that was all signed off. In Europe, things work very differently. In Australia, they do as well. So I, I can't uh, comment on that. But, but I, I, I assume that they are all part of part of it in those places. I, I haven't heard in the, in the Euro, from the European sites. Um, the police are really tend not to be very involved in those in those kinds of things uh, there. They see it as a health intervention, and that's not something that's part of what they're, they, they need. That, that's not their jurisdiction in some ways. Thank you very much. And, um, and, and I will, I guess, just a, really as a comment, just say that I, I think it's important for us, both with our district attorney and police department, really encouraged by the comments from SFPD just about the overall general uh, desire to partner and, and support um, this, this kind of effort. That's, a, I think, a really good sign. Obviously, we have a police department that, that is under control of, of, of the mayor. Uh, we have a district attorney who is independently elected and so um, who is not, not here today, but I really hope um, it would be great to get a, a signal, a statement, a commitment um, uh, ar around a similar kind of partnering um, and, and along the lines of what Mr. Rivera uh, described as being the informal arrangement uh, in New York. I think that's really essential to in terms of as we get something off the ground, um, uh, making sure it's successful. Um, I did want to ask uh, back to, sorry, back to Mr. Rivera. Um, I just want to get back to, I mean, it's, uh, Chair Ronan sort of referenced the, you know, like what's, what's our barrier here, right? Like really kind of getting to the heart of, the, there's so much consensus on one hand, but we're also not moving forward. So, um, I, I like how on point is navigating these these issues. I mean, I hear about the risks to the city and concerns and legal issues. I hear the mayor's office, but I mean, you're a nonprofit organization, right? You have a board of directors. They have fiduciary duties as board members. You, I assume, have legal representation, yep. right? Um, and. You, you obviously, we all know it operates in some ways. There's a gray area, right? The, the practices and laws are emerging on, on this point. Um, but, I mean, you, I don't want to get, obviously get any of your, priv <coughs> your privileged conversations with your counsel, but I mean, I, I guess I do want to say, I mean, you've nav your board has navigated these issues and decided that consistent with your board's fiduciary duties, you can operate the site, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and so, and there are risks, and we all know there are risks, mm -hmm. right? I, I just, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my brain around how a small, like how, how big is your organization overall budget on point and, and number of staff? It's, it's a perfect question because I got to mention something. Right now we're 17 
A little over $17 million. $17 million. So you are a $17 million organization. Uh, I'm a supervisor of a city with a $14 billion budget. So I imagine if the DOJ or the Attorney General of the State of New York or someone else came after your organization, uh, that your board members um, are, are in, uh, let's just say, don't necessarily have the resources uh, <laughs> and, and probably are putting at risk the entire existence of, of the organization and livelihood of folks, um, not to minimize the risks a city jurisdiction might be under. But I, I, I mean, I just find that an interesting contrast that I just want to want to point out. Um, and appreciate you all willing to take that risk and encourage us to, to do the same. Um, I heard you reference on the public, and this is related on the public money issue. So am I understanding it right that no public money is used? Is that specifically for the overdose prevention services and, and you as an organization? This is, this is great because one of my colleagues my San Francisco colleagues gave me, <laughs> asked me to mention something very important. So your questions are just perfect. <laughs> so one of them is, yes, yeah, so the risk, um, I minimize risk by, by one of the things I would tell people if you're going to open one of these and it's still federally illegal is to maybe change some titles so they're not officers of an organization. So I'm the executive director, I am an officer. It was a risk I was willing to take to keep people alive. Um, and every time I meet attorneys, I try to become friends with them in case they have to, and I met two today. So I was like, all right guys, if I ever need you, come, come, come help. Um, uh, and, but it, it's real, right? It, it could happen. Um, uh, the city, I have to say the city right now isn't at risk in New York because what we're doing is, reflects a federal, a federal law. Um, and the city isn't funding what we're doing. But the question is perfect, and, and as one of my colleagues asked, what the city did really well for us, and I have to acknowledge it, is while they couldn't fund the OPCs, the organization grew. All the other ancillary services around the OPC grew, and we were able to offer our participants much more. So when, you, when I think of the model in New York, I think about all of the services attached to the OPC. So we, we, we grew in the last two years by over $10 million in that growth of being able to offer more services and more to our people. So it's important to remember that if you fund an OPC, what else are you funding in addition to it so that those individuals who many people want to see do well and move on and, and not maybe use an OPC for a long time, they have access to other services that are key. So health interventions, case management, document things with documentation. Depending on, you know, on, on where you're located, but I would say New York and San Francisco have similar, the participants have similar needs. But yeah, so the city funds everything outside of the, of the operations of the OPC, and, and then we fundraise for the rest. Thank you. And I, and I just want to clarify maybe back to the, the mayor's office representatives, although I see we may have lost Mr. Paulino. Um, but, you know, when, when the mayor's office says that there's support for the, for the New York model, I, I, I just want to clarify if that's, if that's what is being said, that there, there we be, the mayor's office be ready to move forward like now, tomorrow, with if there it wasn't public money directly funding the the overdose prevention services, right? And you had a private nonprofit provider that that's a, a green light because I don't think there's a barrier to that 
Uh, it's what they're doing in New York. Um, and I, I, I want to echo that, you know, some of my concerns, as Chair Ronan said, is that I think the offices, you know, the supervisor offices have, have felt a bit like we're kind of chasing our own tail here in terms of finding sites, teeing it up, getting it ready, and then just having it having it not move forward. So I, I do think it's important to come out of this hearing knowing are we on the same page that that when we work collaboratively, all of us that that want eagerly want uh, these sites opening in our in our neighborhoods, um, that that model as described with public money, and I'm not saying this is the model we have to do, I, I'm just saying that that model with, with uh, private nonprofit operated, public money not directly being used for overdose prevention services, that's privately fundraised, some, it's kind of up to the, the provider how they want to deal with that. Is, is, is there any barrier to just getting a strong commitment here and now from the mayor's office that like we are ready to like identify the sites move forward because we all read the media and talk to the provider like we know what's happened in the last handful of weeks right and that's not been the message so can you give us that message today Thank you, Supervisor Preston. So on that, again, I would defer to the city attorney's office to help us understand if what has been proposed and, and what you all are describing is what I understand is about how we set up the funding for this. If what has been proposed, what we're ready to operate is what is legal. Um, so again, I, I would defer to the city attorney on that question specifically. Can the city attorney answer yeah, that question? Yeah, and, and let me just clarify. I don't want to cede the ground that you can't use public funds. I, I don't think, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. But but I think it's pretty clear that if you don't, if you don't use, I mean, we just, look, we just operated the Tenderloin Center for, for most of a year. So it's like, I, I'm a little bit like, who who are we kidding that you can't involve public <laughs> you know, contracts with it? But, but even setting that aside, it seems like the clear path that, we could just open one immediately is through this model. I mean, unless the city attorney, yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, I don't know, uh, Deputy City Attorney Pearson through, through the chair, again, not, not addressing the potentially more complicated issues about the, the public funds directly for, uh, you know, for overdose prevention uh, <laughs> services at a site. Can, can you address publicly and understand some of these issues can be addressed publicly and some can't, but um, can you address the model as it's been described? Because we're trying to find where the, where the barrier here is, what's holding us up. Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, um, and first let me just echo the thanks and remarks that have been made about how wonderful this experience has been. Thank you very much. Um, and. As you know, the role of the city attorney's office is to provide legal advice to all of the departments who are involved. We do that confidentially, and so I cannot disclose confidential advice here. That said, the city attorney has expressed his support for the New York model, which is what you've heard today. He has expressed his support for an organization that, like this one that does this work um, so well and with so much love and with the city partnerships that you've heard about from Mr. Rivera with the police, with the health department, with the parks department. Um, he, has, he has expressed his support for that model. So uh, thank you, uh, 
for not only your comments, but also I know you have quite a bit of knowledge personally on, on these issues and appreciate your counsel on them. I, I, I guess I, I do want to just get back to, like if you're a member of the public watching this hearing, you're, you would ask, why don't we have five sites open right now? I mean, you, you, everyone's saying the right, everyone's saying the right thing, right? So, at, and, and nothing has changed since the Department of Public Health produced an excellent overdose prevention plan calling for wellness centers. The mayor blogged about desiring to open wellness centers and adopting that plan. The law hasn't changed since September. We're hearing from the city attorney, at least we're not hearing a public, no, we can't agree to anything related to this. We're hearing a general support for this model. So back to the mayor's office, who frankly has pulled the plug very recently on this model in the District 9 Supervisor's District. I, I just like, are, are we ready to, is there anything else standing in our way? Are we ready to move forward? And what's the timeline? So it sounds like we just need to get into some very specific discussions with the city attorney that sounds like cannot happen in this public forum about, about how to make this happen. Like what are the specific legal barriers? And I, I cannot speak to exactly what those are, but I can say on behalf of the mayor's office that we are committed to figuring those out, working through those with all of you and as soon as possible. All right. I, I won't belabor the point. I will just say this. We are all judged uh, by our actions, not our words. Every one of our offices included, every, all of you. And we, there are no barriers here. There's funding we know from our Department of Public Health representatives for, from our prior hearing. There's fu there was funding to open up a replacement for the Tenderloin Center. There will be more funding pursuant to the, uh, the appropriation that, um, that uh, Chair Ronan and is the, leading And we have settlement money. And we have settlement money. Like, there, there are actually no barriers. The conversations with city attorney's office, and I, I will not get into conversations with city attorney's office except to say they've been going on for months. This is nothing new. Like, we, we know what we can do, what we can't do, what the city attorney's office will, you know, sign off on, what they won't. We know what the risks are. We know what, how to minimize those. Like, we are ready to do this. So either we are, you know, the, and hopefully the mayor and, and Chair Ronan and Supervisor Dorsey and myself and all the other co-sponsors and folks involved are announcing the first site that was promised for 2022. We're announcing it in early 2023 here and the other sites or not. And the longer time goes on where we're not making that announcement and opening the, those sites, someone is not being truthful publicly, right? Because we're all saying we're ready to go. Um, so let's do it. Thank you. Thank you. And, and before I turn it over to our newest colleague, who I'm so excited is here, I just had one question that's a follow-up from Supervisor Preston's question um, for Sam, and that's what action did former Mayor de Blasio take to help open these sites? Do you, did you work with him closely? Did he, was he a supporter? Oh, yeah. He wrote a letter. He wrote a letter, a public letter in support, and then, you know, you said, so, so... The, so he sanctioned the sites. Okay, so, uh, and, and he didn't put any barriers to the Department of Public Health from working with you to open them, like, 
it not appears has happened and here. We'll be happy to share that letter with you for language. Okay, great. And, and, and one last question to make sure I'm getting this right. So On Point has a $17 million budget. Um, the budget for currently for the OPC is $1.4 million. So the $15.6 million that On Point receives, does that all come from the city? No, most of it does, but not all of it. We have most some SAMHSA it. grants, a HRSA grant. Okay, but other. the vast majority of that $15 million comes oh, yeah. from the city. Yeah. Okay. And, that's, and, and again, I want to acknowledge that. For the city to step up and fund us in that way, knowing uh, we can't fund the OPCs, but what can we do to really give the organization life and, and be able to provide those other services, those key services, you know, food and nutrition, things like that that are important. It was huge for them to step up and do that. And when there was the mayoral change in New York, yeah. was there any, like, you've been operating, but, uh, but now over two administrations, mm -hmm. and, that, and, and the city has been supportive under both. So um, I was worried because we opened two months before a new mayor was starting. Right. Um, we were trying to reach him, and our partners at Vocal were able to get him to tweet, and tweeting is good. It's public, <laughs> public information. He tweeted his support. Um, as soon as he came in, we tried to meet with him. He had other issues going on, but he visited us. But two mayors. Uh, yeah, he visited us. He, he's shown his support, um, and I'm working with him right now trying to figure out how to get some of that opioid settlement fund money into, into our program. Fantastic. Yeah. And then has, has the city attorney of New York in, in, at any point tried to stop what you're doing? No, I was hanging out with the other day. We're good. Uh, I just, I want to, I want to offer, <laughs> want to offer my, my, She's busy chasing Trump. She's not messing with us. I, I, it's true. I want to, I want to <laughs> offer my thanks to the city attorney and the two mayors yeah. of the city of New York yeah. for stepping up and supporting your organization yeah, to save how many lives? 700, 700, 700 lives. That deserves a round of applause. I'm going to allow a round of applause. Okay. Mr. Ingardio, and then we'll open it up for public comment. Sorry, thanks for waiting, everyone. Thank you, Supervisor Ronan. Thank you for inviting me here today to learn about your proposal, learn more about the wellness hubs, and especially the New York model. Um, I do have some questions uh, for the folks from New York, because um, I want to learn more a, a bit about like, the metrics of success that you have, or goals that you might have had even before you started. So we, our Department of Public Health, uh, produced an overdose prevention plan last year, and on page eight, it actually states some goals. One of the goals is to aim to reduce fatal overdoses by 15% citywide by 2025. So I'm curious, did you have a goal uh, in, to, to, uh, for a percentage of reducing fatal overdoses, and, and do you remember what it might have been? So the only thing we moved on was the, the uh, de Blasio, made de Blasio before he left, tried to open four sites three years before we opened ours. Um, and wanted 130 overdose interventions in four sites. And in the first year we had, with only two sites, 633. So we saw early on that the, the, the amount of folks they wanted to uh, register and utilize the sites, we surpassed that in three months. Like everything that was written for three years prior, we surpassed within three months when our first piece was published, we already surpassed all those, all and, those goals. And when you started, did you have like a, a number, a percentage in mind? I want to reduce overdose deaths by X percent. Did you have a percentage in mind? You know, we a really... realistic percentage? Because it's one site, you know, two sites and two, you know, two separate neighborhoods, it was, we didn't come up with, with a rate like that. Um, I think we were more worried about staying open and not getting 
arrested initially. <laughs> you know, like, can we keep operating? Um, and and he just kept growing. So and, and Alex could talk. You know, he should talk. Sure, yeah, yeah I'd love to. Yeah. yeah. Can I just quickly just speak to this particular issue because there's really two different things going on here, right? One is the amount of um, saves, overdose, they've done at the site. But I think your question was citywide, right? Right. How much you want to reduce and, the, right, the fatalities and, and, by? Right. The, the difficult piece epidemiologically here is that there's a lot of factors to drive where there's overdose in a city. And having overdose prevention sites is one of those things. But there's, there's other things, many of which we don't have, uh, or, or many of which the city of, and county of San Francisco don't have a lot of power over. The, the most important one being the drug supply, right? And so what we've seen here in San Francisco over the last, especially the last four years, has been this, you know, huge increase in overdose deaths. That is very much attributed to fentanyl entering the drug supply and us not having a safe drug supply out here. And so to have one intervention and say, well, this is, is this intervention going to do this or is it not going to do this? is a difficult thing to try to study because you can't sort of say when you've got all these other things going on, those are the factors, and, and COVID was one of them. There's, there's a lot of things that have happened over the last couple of years that impact that overdose rate. Um, but I, I, would, um, I would caution, I guess, Ben, if, if, if you are indeed interested in starting one of these sites, to have goals necessarily that, that are for a site like this to be responsible for or not be responsible for the city rate one way or the other is a tricky, tricky territory to go into. Are we, that, aiming, are we aiming too low at 15? I think like a, a resident just watching this like 15%, that seems pretty low. Why, why not aim higher? Well, I think great to aim higher, and I, and, I'm, I mean, and certainly um, Dr. Cunnins and the health department, you know, I think they have they have uh, aimed aimed high here. We just need to make sure, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that, and the health department is currently involved in several amazing initiatives that are they're working towards that. This would be one of those initiatives, and it's sort of to hang the whole thing on this one way or the other, even up front right now, is something I'd hesitate to do one way or the other. That said, knowing that there's 700, no, no one's dying at the site, that, that is, that, that is an, an important piece. But more sites could help reduce the number of deaths <coughs> overall, basically, but it won't, it won't eliminate the deaths because people are gonna be dying from overdoses outside of the sites. Exactly. Because of other yeah. circumstances. And, exactly, right. and, and our, you know, our estimates is outside in the community in San Francisco, about 7% of all overdoses are, are leading to, to deaths in the community at this point. We, and, if know, the, and, you, and I just want to mention, like, I'm a true believer in the full menu of options, right? Because human condition is very complex. Addiction is very complex. So not everything's going to work for everyone. So I, I like the idea of a wellness hub because if it's going to save one person's life who wouldn't be saved otherwise, great. But I am curious about those who are not in the wellness hub uh, whose lives aren't being saved. Are there other ways, like, is it a matter of just having more wellness hubs or do we need to have different ways to prescribe to, to address the issues for those who don't come to wellness hub? I mean, I think that that's a great question, I think, for Dr. Cunnan specifically, because they've, you know, they've got a lot of different things going on here. I, I, I think, you know, uh, Mayor Breed had a, a safe injection site uh, task force. I think it was 2018 or so. There was 12 of us on that, um, including the police department was on that. And the recommendations that came through from that, this is now five years ago, um, were for there to be several of these sites. And, and I think one of the things that I heard 
from Sam and I know from having visited these sites in New York, uh, and he talked about there not being any lines outside and, and that sort of thing is that, you know, in order for this intervention to be able to impact, you know, significantly in the city, you need to have demand and supply sort of meet here, right? And so if you just have one small site, that's not going to sort of take care of the whole problem for the, US, for, for, for the whole city in some sort of way. <coughs> and so I, I do think from the recommendations of that task force that, that Mayor um, Breed uh, had, um, you know, you're going to need several of these things, the more of these you have. But that's not an, enough to sort of, you know, take care of the overdose problem that we have. There's a whole host of other things that are part of the overdose prevention plan that Dr. Cunnins has, and, 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 and there's a lot of other things that happen in Narcan distributions. Drug treatment is very important. You, have to need, you need to increase that. There's a lot of different things that need to happen in order to, to decrease, you know, from what we're seeing now, 700 deaths a year, you know. Um, and again, as was, was said earlier, I think, by... Um, um, you know, just five, six years ago, that number was 200. Um, you know, back when we first really started tracking this, uh, and, I, and I was here doing research on that in the late 1990s. Uh, you know, we were we were below 100. Uh, you know, so uh, there's a lot of other factors at play. Yeah. Did you have any uh, like a percentage of where you wanted to enroll enroll people into receiving medications for addiction treatment? Did you have like a goal for that? Like. We, as a city of San Francisco, our goal is 30% to enroll into uh, medi medicated treatment. Did you have any goals? This would have to be Dr. Cunnins would have to speak on this. I'm, I'm only a, a researcher and, and, um, and, you know, here talking about what the science is around, around these things. But Dr. Cunnins could speak uh, better to that from the health department. Oh, are we allowed to ask? Yes, absolutely. And I know, I know we need to, we, we also um, have eight other items on the agenda. So Sorry. I'm, I, I'm definitely I'm, using these, my... My questions are basic because, like, for the <laughs> general public, right? Absolutely. Are just, you know, when you look at numbers like where our goal is 15% to reduce fatal overdose and 30% enrollment, people are going to wonder why only 30? And what's... Why Absolutely. is it not higher? And, and, you know, are there ways we can do more to enroll more people? Um, I, so I'm just trying to speak on behalf of just the ordinary resident who's probably curious. Um, uh, hi there, Hillary Cunnins, Director of Behavioral Health, Mental Health SF, Department of Health. It's Supervisor Ingardio. Love, terrific to meet you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, you, ask, you are asking uh, really important questions that we have certainly thought about um, and aimed to set ambitious, but what we thought would be realizable goals. I just want to repeat, let me. Uh, repeat what Dr. Kroll, I think, highlighted importantly to the topic of this hearing is that safe consumption or wellness hubs is really one component of a continuum of care and services uh, tailored to meet the needs of the individual person aiming to save their life, support them to enter recovery, and to do that using <coughs> tools and tactics that the person is interested in and ready for, and to reiterate what Mr. Rivera said, uh, done with love and dignity and respect. And so we'd be delighted, uh, myself, my team, to come talk to you more and really consider and think and appreciate the opportunity to grapple with some of the questions you're raising. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and for the sake of time, I'll stop my questioning, but I just wanted to point out that I think uh, it'll be helpful to uh, explain to the residents of San Francisco um, the value of this program, because any life saved is 
you can't put a dollar on it, it's worth saving. But I think people will also ask or want to know um, if our goal is 15% reduction, are there other programs that can save even more lives that we can also fund? And like, what's the balance of that? So, but yeah, I look forward to, to learning more. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and, and I'll just reiterate that when I went to visit the Tenderloin uh, Center in its very early operating, it very much, it's, it sounds so similar uh, to, to uh, On Point and the love and the dignity that the staff um, and, and everyone at the Tenderloin Center provided was, was palpable. You could feel it, you could see it. And, and it was extraordinary in that way. And we were, you know, at the time, the 11 months it was open, I know Dr. Cunnins was <coughs> constantly iterating and, and experimenting and changing things to make it work even, even better. Um, so we were on our way to the New York model and then, you know, the, it, it was cut off short. And, and that's what, what this hearing is about today. Um, we not only want to restart, which was what was already starting to happen in San Francisco, we want more of them. Uh, we need more of them. It's, there's, not a, there's not alternative solutions, unfortunately, um, for, for this crisis. And you know, uh, Deputy Chief uh, uh, Pang from the fire department operates the street crisis response units that operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week and deal with people using drugs and in mental health crisis on the streets. The problem is there's not many places to take them, right? And so one of the places to take people was the Tenderloin Center when it was open. We don't have that anymore. So, you know, having, a, 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 you know, for people that aren't ready to enter treatment yet, people, a place for people to go where they will be treated with dignity, respect, love, they're off the street, they're making relationships with people and getting some medical, other types of medical care um, that really is part of the continuum, and 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 we don't have that anymore in San Francisco, um, and that's what this hearing is about. We we, we want we, the past is the past. Let's look forward, and what we want to do looking forward is be inspired as we have been <laughs> uh, by Mr. Rivera and the extraordinary that work that's happening in New York and restart it here in San Francisco. And, and so, and so that's, that, that, that's the, the whole point of this. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Rivera. I have to give a, a very special thanks to Nikki Sani from my office who worked very hard to make this happen together with the community, some of whom you're gonna hear from. I need to give a, a, a huge shout out to the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, the Gubbio Project, St. John's Evangelist Church, Health Right 360, uh, who helped put this together as well. Um, and with that, I thanks for everyone so much for your patience. Oh, I do wanna mention one other thing really quickly. I love this. We've never done this before where we've had city staff all sit there, brought outside experts in, had the outside experts teach us, not only on the board of supervisors, but for other city staff, and then give city staff the opportunity to ask questions just like we have. I think it worked really well. I'm just putting that out there. Um, so, you know, there, there, there's a lot of firsts, <laughs> a lot of firsts in this, in this hearing, in this crowd. And with that, I will open up this item for public comment. Thank you, Madam Chair. We now invite members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person to go ahead and start lining up along the curtains there. 
Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2499-1046355, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and that will be your signal to begin your comments. Uh, can the first in-person speaker come forward to the, uh, to the lectern there? Uh, go ahead and start speaking and I'll start your time. Great, thank you. Good afternoon, Chair and Committee members. My gratitude to all the co-sponsors and the presenters. Thank you, Dr. Kral and Executive Director, Executive Director Rivera. Uh, in 2018, Glide hosted the Safer Inside demonstration site, and a year before, in 2017, the City Safe Injection Services Task Force, as Dr. Crawl mentioned, delivered their overall recommendation to implement supervised consumption services in San Francisco. Every year since then, the overdose crisis has intensified. Due to persistent stigma, marginalization, criminalization and misinformation, some which continues to be perpetuated by city leaders who tout discredit articles and debunk studies, increased use and isolation has resulted in the heart-shattering overdose figures that we see today. And the most significant reason we've even begun to see these figures fall is because of peer-to-peer -peer reversals and the tireless efforts of underfunded harm reductionists and their volunteers. Delays Termination of services without continuity of care, this is policy violence, and it ignores the daily deaths and overwhelming, irrefutable evidence in support of supervised consumption and safe supply. Our most vulnerable neighbors and loved ones, particularly black, indigenous, and people of color, and those who are at the intersection of homelessness and substance use, they're the ones experiencing the brunt of these consequences. Supervised consumption saves lives. It saves the lives of people who would otherwise die alone. And the science behind these interventions is emphatic. They're extremely cost-effective. These programs work. So please proceed with the urgency that this moment deserves. Acknowledge the humanity of people who use drugs and provide them with dignity, inclusion, safety, and evidence-based compassionate care. Thank you. Thank you, Wesley Saver, for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Chair and Committee members. Eliana Binder, Policy Associate for Glide, and a member of the, both the Safer Inside and Treatment on Demand coalitions. I urge you to implement wellness hubs that include overdose prevention centers citywide and to scale. Thousands of people voluntarily access these services at our city's own Tenderloin Center, and the hundreds of overdose reversals there demonstrate an undeniable need in San Francisco and just how powerful these irrefutably proven public health interventions can be. This included both people experiencing homelessness and people who are housed who all felt safer accessing the city's harm reduction services instead of using in isolation. There has been extensive community consultation on overdose prevention centers in San Francisco, and multiple commissions and task force have concluded that these programs are necessary and will benefit San Francisco. We also need other dignified services. San Francisco has a dearth of drop-in centers that provide basic necessities such as respite, bathrooms, showers, and laundry, as well as benefits navigation and connections to jobs and housing. The city's support and collaboration is required to make these centers happen, including the mayor, this board, um, and the city attorney's office, as well as other departments, especially for OPCs to meet the true level of need that exists in the city. As we heard during this hearing, it is possible to accomplish this as New York has done and as we've already done at the Tenderloin Center. The city can use opioid settlement dollars to open wellness hubs with OPCs and save thousands of lives. 
San Francisco faces an urgent crisis of overdose deaths, and we have the local expertise to confront this if the city acts with the determination, speed, and adequate resources that are required. Thank you. Thank you, Eliana Binder, for your comments. Next speaker, please. Um, hello, supervisors. My name is Sheba. I'm a public policy, home, uh, public policy manager at HomeRise, a supportive housing provider in the city. But I'm here today as a member of the Treatment on Band Coalition, urging you all to move forward with the opening of the wellness hubs all around our city. It is urgent, and it is an intervention that aims to meet the need, which is essentially to get people into treatment. We have seen the ex effective impact of the Tenderloin Center to save, which was essentially to save the lives of people who matter to someone else. Safe consumption sites are pivotal to engaging people who, who use drugs in many ways, whether that is to get access to general health care or to get them into the right kind of treatment program that supports them and where they are. The key part of all this work is engagement first. Having conversations and building trust among people who use drugs, people facing homelessness, those who are struggling with dual diagnosis, does not happen overnight, but it can happen in a setting that is open to all who need it, a place with people who are solely there to work with individuals, essentially case manage, educate them, share resources that support them to get closer to making the right, the right decision about the treatment option that works for them. There is no persuasive data to suggest that safe consumption sites increase the amount or frequency of drug use itself, or that they result in high rates of local drug-related crimes. As a city, we are so very lucky to have access to drug ec policy experts, syringe access programs, and providers who are helping people reduce their overall use. All we need is for this board to be brave, for this mayor to be bold, and to push this intervention forward. We need to be bold enough to take this chance and open wellness hubs to honor the lives of so many people we have already lost while waiting for the state and federal agents to intervene. Our focus as a city should be on understanding the need for treatment, what is available, what is missing, and what we need to work on as a community. Thank you. Thank you so much for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, supervisors and city departments. Thank you for participating in this hearing today. Thank you, Supervisor Ronan. I think this was great, okay? Now we need decisions, please, from everyone, not just talking. I just wanna say, before I lose my two minutes, that the people who are missing here and have to be in this partnership is housing. You go into treatment and then you're stable and you have your goals and then what happens? So that component has to be in the daily problem solving and it has to be in the future. And that's what's missing in San Francisco. The other thing that New York offered and was mentioned earlier by Director Rivera is that they changed the narrative on what is safety. Don't forget that. This is what we're doing in this room today. I represent taxpayers for public safety, and that was the first thing we had to work on. That's what we had to work on for LGBTQ. Stop arresting us. That's not public safety. All right? So that is what we need to do. And I just want to say, and to, re, to
to honor uh, Director Cunnings when she came here on her own. She said, engagement first. Doctor, I mean, Don, uh, I want to call him doctor. Director Rivera said partnerships. They are intertwined. And the person who wants services and a lifestyle that they respect for themselves means engagement first to participate in choices, whether it's abstinence at any point or Thanks harm so reduction for forever like we do with alcohol. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is Paul Harkin. I've been an advocate since 1997 for safe consumption sites in the United States. And it's like Groundhog Day here. It keeps nearly happening. But then there's an election, or then there's something else, and it gets put on the back burner like Gavin Newsom did. And it's always drug users who lose out in these uh, procrastinations. And I fear we're in another moment of procrastination in spite of the unanimity around the fact that everybody seems to know that these things work. The evidence is overwhelming. Um, for people who haven't read it, I would recommend you read Dr. Nora Volkow, who's the head of the National uh, Institute of Drug Abuse. She wrote a paper called Making Addiction Treatment More Realistic and Pragmatic. The perfect should not be the enemy of the good. Quite a short read, but a very, very punchy read that will make you feel a lot more educated on the subject. And she was a very much a person who came late to embracing harm reduction. There is no opposition between harm reduction and abstinence. It's a continuum. And people peddling that false notion and that false dichotomy are doing a disservice to the health and wellness of everybody in this city. So please, can we move from the talk? Because I keep hearing that little chair song coming back on. We're going round and round the Mulberry Bush. This is an intervention that works. Let's get it on. Thank you so much, Paul Harkin, for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Supervisors. It's Sarah Short. Um, I'm speaking on behalf of the Treatment on Demand Coalition. I first really want to thank Supervisor Ronan. This was a really, really informative and powerful hearing. And having Sam Rivera here uh, to speak up how this can happen is, is just what we needed. So thank you. Um, so, you know, a lot of times people come to public comment and there are certain sayings we, we tend to hear, things like, you know, no, there's no time to waste and, and we can't afford to wait and it's a matter of life and death. And, you know, I, I was thinking about it uh, this time, you know, what, what I would say and I was thinking, you know, it's important to say that this is a case where these are literally true, not just sort of aphorisms or whatever, but it is a matter of life or death in this case. And we have to be very, very clear about that. Um, safe consumption centers save lives and they reduce deaths. Like it's not any more complicated than that as we've well heard today. Um, also today, we've seen that we can do it. it. It, again, it's become abundantly clear. I think, I think we had a sense of it prior. Now we know a lot of details on how this can be done. Um, and then, you know, there's plenty of compelling evidence 
and we have a mentor now, we have a model, so we can always draw on them. Um, and so what that shows us is at this point, all that's really standing in the way of making this happen and, and saving these lives is politics. Politics is standing in the way and that's it. I want, you know, again, let's be clear about that. So we have a choice to make. Is this, uh, you know, the, the choice I think is, is, are we gonna choose life or are we gonna choose politics? And I ask you to think about this, you know, very heavily. I, th I think that's exactly what it boils down to. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah Short, for your comments. Next speaker, please. Hi, good afternoon, Jennifer Friedenbach. Thank you, supervisors, for holding this hearing and Supervisor Ronin um, for the alternative format. Really appreciated that. Um, not sure I have a lot to add from what folks were saying already, but um, just to note that um, from the Coalition on Homelessness's perspective, um, we're really deeply concerned around that intersection of homelessness and substance use. And we're also concerned about the rising proportions of people who um, are homeless and self-identifying as having substance use issues. And it is you know, really a situation where um, people are experiencing moments in their lives and at different moments, they're gonna need different things. And within the homeless community, the need is incredibly diverse. And so having a lot of different kinds of interventions that are reaching people at different moments is incredibly effective. There has been this really, for me, just strange, like I kind of, my mouth kind of drops open this whole like debate around harm reduction. Um, which basically to me is saying, we're debating whether we value people's human dignity. Is that really up for debate? Um, but apparently it is. Um, and so I think for us, um, we've seen a huge loss in drop-in capacity um, in our homeless system. Um, we've seen it more and more difficult um, to engage folks in services, especially folks that are suffering from really high acuities, and that this, this modality intersects really well within that drop in capacity and that idea of engaging, of wrapping our city arms around someone and really trying to get them um, to the place that they're trying to get to. Thank you. Thank you, Jen, for Friedenbach for your comments. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Lydia Branston, and I'm the executive director at the Gubbio Project, and I'm here today to say that we're ready to open a site. So we're able to take on the responsibility. We have a staff that all have learned experience who have been here who are willing to take on the risk because we love our people. One of the things that I heard today in this chamber that you don't hear very often is the word love. We heard it many times. And I think that's one of the things that Sam brought to the table today is that this is about loving people, you know? And Supervisor Ronan, you talked about this, whether this is still the same San Francisco. Every day in the work that I do with people who are in deep crisis, who have been abandoned and neglected, I see love. I see love. And this is about love. You know, and when people get angry and say horrible things on the internet, often I think it's really that anger is an expression of deep pain because they don't know how to cure the ails 
when you walk by someone who's on the street who's in deep suffering place, and it just makes you mad that you can't fix that. Well, this is an opportunity for us to fix a little bit of that, right? Saving a life, being present, being a part of people's lives, welcoming them every day into our services and giving them the love and respect that their dignity that is inherent to them as an individual deserves. Thank you. Thank you, Lydia Branson, for your comments. Thank you for your bravery, Lydia. Next speaker, please. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Hi, Commander. Um, I'm also on the board of directors at the Gubbio Project, but I'm involved in a lot of things in the Tenderloin, including Code Tenderloin, where we go out and offer services to people in the neighborhood. You know, we kind of overuse this phrase, uh, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. 100 block of Turk Street, one hour ago, we lost an overdose victim. Last night or m Monday night, on the way home to BART, in front of the old Payless at Market and Fifth Street, overdose death, right in front of the Payless. We can't make this up. There's a new drug on the way out here, and I'm sure a lot of you all know about it, that's going to make fentanyl a joke if you could diminish it like that. We got to be ready for it. You know, we got to be clinicians. We got to provide a safe, clean, clinical spot that is mimicking the one in New York. I flew him back to New York twice to visit on point. And it's amazing. You know, we in California, Silicon Valley, we think we can do it best. We think we're the best. We got it going on. We got the 49ers. We got the worst. But we can't do this. Why not? We can. And I don't want to... I don't want to go in on share shorts things, but is it politics? And I know it's rough yelling out the word politics to politicians. You know, it's like going to the mechanic shop saying mechanics. <laughs> but they're good politics. Let's use the good politics to get this done. You know, and let's not talk about, I know this is the budget of finance. It costs a million dollars a patient to deal with stage three cancer. What's the difference? If we got to spend a million dollars on getting someone, Girl, and I didn't even intend to say this, walking down the street early today, and I saw uh, one of my clients who used to been in Tenloy as long as I have, and I waved to her, and I said, you know, I ain't seen you in a while. Where you been? Dell, I'm clean. I don't do that no more. And I just, it was raining too hard. I couldn't run over her. I just wanted to hug her. So give us the opportunity to hear that more in the Tenloy. Thanks so thank much you for all. your comments. Uh, before before I start your time, sir, this is the last call for uh, any in-person speakers to go ahead and line up if you want to provide public comment on this hearing. Uh, we won't be opening public comment in person after this speaker. Uh, sir, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Curtis Bradford, and I'm co-chair of the Tenderloin People's Congress, a longtime Tenderloin resident and um, a community organizer for the Tenderloin neighborhood. I've been doing this work in the neighborhood for well over a decade, lived in the Tenderloin for that time. Um, and you know what really bothers me is we've been talking about these safe consumption sites that entire time too. We really have. This conversation was happening in the Tenderloin over 10 years ago. I've been, I've been working on this issue for, I've given public testimony dozens of times about this, right? Five years ago, the mayor's task force gave us some recommendations and we had the new uh, overdose prevention plan. We've, we've, this, is, this is why I say you can't make this stuff up. What's happened also in that 10 years Thousands more people have died. Thousands more have died. And now, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be mean, but 
and then you tell me, oh, well, we just need to talk to the city attorney's office to find out what, what have you been doing for the last 10 years? The rules haven't changed. The laws haven't changed. You know, before it was like, oh, well, we can't do it because Trump has made threats. Well, Trump's not there no more. I mean, like, it's just I'm tired of excuses. We know how to do this. We know it's doable. We know it saves lives. We've sent people to Vancouver. We've sent people to New York. And people are still dying, and I'm still hearing excuses. And so it doesn't make any sense to me, because I've watched my friends die. I've revived people on the sidewalk, and I've actually failed to revive people on the sidewalk. And I'm done hearing excuses. Thank you. Thank you, Curtis Bradford, for your comments. Seeing no more speakers here in the chamber, uh, we do have eight callers in the queue with three, oh, sorry, eight callers listening with three in the queue. Uh, Mr. Lamb, can you uh, unmute our first caller, please? Hi, uh, this is Eva from uh, Harlem. Can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Please continue. Yeah, so uh, I represent the Greater Harlem Coalition, um, which is a grassroots uh, volunteer um, organization based in Harlem, comprised of 150 local organizations, including churches, uh, block association, business association. And um, we'd like to just give you a very different picture than what On Point has painted. Um, all of our organizations are not against harm reduction, but we are against reckless harm reduction. We need, um, we're advocate for more responsible harm reduction, and that is not what we see in uh, New York City. And so I think, you know, as you proceed with this hearing, what we urge you to think about is how much the voice of Harlem's uh, residents and businesses are not heard. We call newspapers, and they are even too afraid to report what is happening on the ground. Uh, yes, the safe injection site essentially serves as a magnet to attract more and more drug users in an area already overburdened with social services. Think about it. In San Francisco, are you going to open a safe injection site where uh, Mark Zuckerberg is going to live? No. So inevitably, these sites are going to be open where um, in neighborhoods of color, lower-income neighborhoods, people like um, people in Greater Harlem Coalition who, have, who don't have a voice, who don't have all day to sit here to give hearing in every hearing that you hold. We're not professionals. We're just here to tell you that when we talk to the police, police are not happy, fire department's not happy, local businesses represented by our business improvement district. You can look it up. It's called 125th Street Business Improvement District and Upton Grand Central. They're not happy. Yes, I do apologize for cutting anybody off, but we are timing each speaker at two minutes. Uh, Mr. Lamb, next speaker, please. So, supervisors, first and foremost, listen to the comments of the speaker from Harlem. Number two, I see all the presenters, including uh, those who are representing the San Francisco Police Department have left the chambers. I want to tell you, supervisors and the city attorney and the mayor, 
you cannot do a needs assessment. We have a cartel that has over 500 places or units in the East Bay, 200 in San Francisco that daily carry on flooding our streets with drugs. And not once have you all given this statistics to anyone because you all are not fit to do a needs assessment. Your supervisors have wasted over $30 million on the Tenderloin Center, illegally allowing that to happen. Your supervisors, in like manner, have screwed up things at Laguna Honda, killing nine of our seniors. Thousands of people have died, and thousands of people will die because you all have no idea the drugs that are coming in right now. They are a thousand times more powerful than fentanyl. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your comments. Mr. Lamb, next speaker, please. Hello, Speaker. We do hear you. Uh, speaker, we do hear you with the uh, with the broadcast delay in the background. So, yeah, perhaps we can uh, come back to that color. Good afternoon, Board of Supervisors and other um, guests. I, this is Ellen Grant. I'm a mother with Mothers Against Drug Addiction and Death. And, you know, we share all of the goals, and there's so many wonderful aspects of these supervised consumption sites. What is really tough for us who have kids on the street in the throes of addiction is that you're doing this before the infrastructure is built around treatment. For the last decade or more, there's been a decline in DPH's treatment in, in people in treatment, um, even as the homeless and addiction crisis has gone up. Of the whole budget, $600 million, we spend only $75 million on treatment where everything else is harm reduction. So it's gotten to the point where very few people actually get treatment, and that's why so many people are getting sicker and sicker every day. There, there are one glaring example at a recent Board of Supervisors meeting was from the Criminal Justice Department. They said there are 850 people waiting in jail because there aren't treatment beds. And if we're trying to be, you know, a, a civil, you know, criminal justice hero, what is that all about? Come on, you know, we have 500 beds sanctioned by DPH, and we have thousands of people with addiction crisis. So our focus has got to be on, on, on treatment. And the, the, the other problem that has been completely, um, un, um, you know, not clearly reported is the magnet effect that these sites always have. In, in Vancouver, which is the first in North America to open a supervised consumption site, their share of overdose deaths of Vancouver went from 2% to 4% in 18 years, and that had nothing to do with fentanyl. That was a longitudinal study because people congregate around the site. They don't necessarily use it, Speaker but they Sam go with- expired. Thank you, Ellen Grant, for your comments. Uh, Mr. Lamb, do we have any more speakers in the queue? Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Please begin. 
Hi, my name is Seth Katz. I am a community member of the Tenderloin, and I think it's interesting, and I'm really grateful that folks are talking about how harm reduction and treatment or abstinence are intersectional. I'm somebody who was a person who used injection drugs for a long time, you know, since I was a teenager. And it was harm reduction that, you know, and it doesn't bring anybody, nor does it have to bring everybody to sobriety for them to live a successful life. Um, but harm reduction was the only thing that worked for me. Um, I loved in Sam Rivera's story talking about, you know, how it's those people with the lived experience that end up becoming the most beautiful social workers, um, you know, with the power of education and lived experience to create this beautiful compassion and empathy. And it was through the unconditional love of harm reductionists and transformative justice um, that I was able to get to where I am and then be able to, you know, serve my community in this way. So I think that there is there is misinformation that there is no access to treatment if people don't want it in harm reduction, um, because that's a lot of what we do actually. So thank you. Thank you so much for your comments, uh, Mr. Lamb. Next speaker, please. This is Reverend Kevin Deal. I'm priest in San Francisco at St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church. The situation on the streets has gotten worse and gotten far worse for people who use drugs. Uh, people are dying at rates we've never seen in our history. Last year, over 100,000 people died from overdoses, and it seems likely that next year will be worse with the proliferation of fentanyl and frank, let alone heroin and meth and other opioids. Rivera pointed out that this is a cliche, but it's, act it's true. It's only through meeting each other where we are and knowing that we are inherently beloved, that we can actually change one another for the better. That's true of me, that's true of each one of you in the chamber, and that's true of people who are using drugs and wanting to choose healthy options but don't know where to turn. People who use drugs need an array of options in healthcare so that they can be met where they are, and safe consumption is a low barrier entryway into making choices for one's health and to be connected to different options for greater health and well-being, jobs, communities, et cetera. Mayor Breeze, these will take courage to open. I know you're not here, but I also know you're courageous and can do this. So please, City Attorney Chu, Mayor Breeze, and all esteemed supervisors work with us to make these happen, to improve our city, and most importantly, to save lives. Thank you. Thank you so much for your comments, Reverend. And Madam Chair, that does conclude our queue. Thank you so much. Public comment is now closed. Um, again, I want to thank everyone. I, some people had to leave during this incredibly long hearing. This, is, this could be my last day as chair of this committee, so I felt like I was entitled to take a little bit of chair privilege and run a hearing that I thought was desperately important for the city, but it was longer than usual, and so I just want to thank everybody for their patience um, and participation in this hearing. Uh, with that, uh, Mr. Clerk, I would like to make a motion to declare this hearing held and file uh, this item. On that motion that this hearing be heard and filed, uh, Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. 
Corona and I, we have three eyes. That motion it, uh, passes unanimously. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks. Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number two? Yes, item number two is a resolution fixing prevailing wage rates for workers performing under city contracts for public works Sorry. and improvements, janitorial services, public off street parking lots, garages, or storage facilities for automobiles on property owned or leased by the city, workers engaged in theatrical or technical services for shows on property. Uh, owned by the city, workers engaged in the hauling of solid waste generated by the city in the course of city operations, uh, workers performing moving services under city contracts at facilities owned and leased by the city, workers engaged in uh, exhibit, display, or trade show work at special events, workers engaged in broadcast services on property owned by the city, workers engaged in loading or unloading into or from commercial vehicles uh, on city property in connection with a show or special event, workers engaged in city guard, uh, security guard services under city contracts, or at facilities owned or leased by city property, and motor bus uh, service contracts. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2499-104-6355, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that will be your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you. Supervisor Safai. Thank you. Uh, colleagues, this is a routine item that comes before us to fix the prevailing wage for categories covered in Chapter 21 of the Admin Code. I want to thank Pat Mulligan, Director of Office of Labor Standards Enforcement, and his team for preparing the required survey that was considered and adopted at the Civil Service Commission. Setting these rates is critical because they provide for the basis of each covered city contract. Parking lots and garages, um, which is represented by our Teamsters, janitorial security firms, SEIU, Local 87, and UHW. Um, um, excuse me. Uh, uh, I can't even remember. I'm sorry. SEIU, um, United Service Workers West. Sorry. Um, Theater space is IATSE, trade shows and special event works at Moscone, signing display in IATSE, uh, moving services uh, done by Teamsters as well, and many more are covered. Generally speaking, collective bargaining agreements negotiated by organized labor represent the prevailing wage rate of wages in the jurisdiction in their sector as organized. You can see this analysis in the OLSE report. Uh, there is one minor uh, error that I wanted to note that I believe we were able to fix, and that's in the health and welfare level. It should be at 722 an hour rather than 701 in the report, so I wanted to read that into the record. I think that was fixed. Um, and with that, I'll ask my colleagues to support this item um, if there's anything from the BLA. Hear from the BLA. Thank you, Chair Ronan. Uh, Nick Munar from the Budget Legislative Analyst Office. Um, as stated, this resolution um, fixes the prevailing wages for employees within certain classifications uh, noted in the resolution. We detail all the changes on page, starting on page seven of our report. We do consider approval to be a policy matter for the board because under the code, the board can consider other kinds of information beyond the survey that was provided by the Civil Service Commission. Thank you so much. And um, I know Pat Mulligan's here. I don't know that there's any questions, but if you wanted to present anything, Director Mulligan?
Thank you, Supervisor Ronan, Melgar, and Safai. Um, again, just to reiterate what Supervisor Safai stated, this is annual um, approvals. It also includes the 60, almost 60 classifications for the recognized by the California Department of Industrial Relations, um, and probably three times as many of that uh, subclassifications. Um, OLSE um, uh, uses basically the same processes as both the California Department of Industrial Relations and the United States Department of Labor in um, putting together our submittal for the prevailing rates for the 10 classifications that are unique to San Francisco. So just to make that. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'm available for any Mr. questions. Mr. Clerk, can you please open the, oh, did you finish? Sorry. Yeah, I'm just, I'm available for any questions. Thank you. Wonderful. There's no questions. Mr. Clerk, can you please open the setup up for public comment? Uh, yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this resolution are joining us in person should line up now to speak. For those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID 02499-104-6355 and press pound twice. You'll need to press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and that'll be your queue to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber and Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Public comment is now closed. Supervisor Safay, would you like to do the honors? Yeah, I just wanted to, because I got a question from the city attorney. Just for the record, uh, the, the, the document I was referring to was the Administrative Code Section 21C.2 Janitorial Services. I think when it was originally prepared, it had the health and welfare at the incorrect uh, rate. So I read the, the new rate into the record. Okay, is this in the OLSC report or? Yeah, it was I'm handed sorry. out by the clerk. Okay, I just wanted to make sure for the record we knew exactly. It's not the resolution that's being amended, but one of the accompanying documents. Correct. And, okay. Is that correct, Director Mulligan? Yes, he's nodding okay. his head. Okay. And you have thank now you. have a copy. Okay, thank you. So I'd like to make a motion to send this amended item to the, oh, do we have to make a motion? Okay, so a motion to amend as read into the record. Is that right? There's no amendment being made to the resolution itself, it. but okay. I think the record re can reflect that we have corrected this and we'll include it in the board file. Okay, great. So make a motion to send this item to the full board with a positive recommendation. Uh, yes, on that motion uh, offered by Vice Chair Safai, uh, to forward this uh, resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation. Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Malgar. Melgar, aye, Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes unanimously. Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number three? Uh, yes, item number three is a resolution authorizing the Human Services Agency on behalf of the city and county to apply for and accept the county allocation award from the California Department of Housing and Community Development under the Transitional Housing Program for an amount uh, uh, up to approximately $4 million and Housing Navigation and Maintenance Program for an amount of approximately 607000 to help young adults secure and maintain housing. Members of the public are joining us remotely and wish to comment. Please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2499-104-6355 and press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that will be your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, and I, Rod Finetti, I believe might, might be online to yes. present. Hi, good, good afternoon. Hi. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm from the San Francisco Human Services Agency, and um, as stated, I'm presenting item number three uh, to apply for and accept funds from the California Department of Housing and Community Development 
for the transitional housing program and the housing navigation and maintenance program. So the California Department of Housing and Community Development uh, recently issued two funding opportunities to help young adults and child welfare um, secure and maintain housing. Last year, we were awarded funds through the grants to help the um, to help young adults in the child welfare system secure and maintain housing. And recently, the state allocated additional monies for the programs, uh, which is why we're coming back to the board for this new authorization. Um, as was stated, the first grant opportunity is for a little over $4 million to support the transitional housing program for current and former uh, foster care ages, um, youth aged 18 to 25. And the second is about $600,000 to fund housing navigation services to help child welfare involved young adults aged 18 to 21 to find suitable housing. Um, young adults currently or formerly in child welfare face acute challenges with homelessness and housing instability in San Francisco's very high cost market. The goal of this programming is to reduce homelessness for foster youth working in collaboration with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, HSH, and the San Francisco Housing Authority. Um, services that will be provided include the following. Support funding and applying for um, housing, lease-up and pre-housing direct services, move-in deposits and housing subsidies, housing support and navigation, housing st stabilization and retention services, and linkages to um, the Youth Homeless Response System services. These resources will be available to support um, up to 70 foster care youth. And um, just to reiterate, these items are sort of reauthorizations. Uh, we had come to the board last year and, and uh, had acceptance um, of the resolution for these allocations, and these are just increased amounts. So thank you, and I'm happy to take any questions you have. Thank you so much. I don't believe there's any questions. Can we open this item up for public comment? Yes, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item or joining us in person should line up now. For those listening remotely, the number to call is 415-655-0001. The meeting ID is uh, 2499-104-6355, then press pound twice. Uh, once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. And if you're already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. And as your signal to begin your comments, Seeing no in-person speakers uh, in the chamber, and Madam Chair, we have no speakers uh, in the queue. Public comment is now closed. I'd like to make a motion to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion, I forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three aye. That motion passes unanimously. Thank you, Mr. Finetti. Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number four? Yes, item number four is an ordinance retroactively authorizing the Office of Economic and Workforce Development to accept and expend a grant in the amount of $5 million from the California Economic Development Department for the Community Economic Resilience Fund Planning Grant for the grant period of October 1st, 2022 through September 30th, 2024, and amending the annual salary ordinance for fiscal years 2022 to 23 and 2023 to 24 to provide for the creation of one grant-funded full-time position in class 1823 senior administrative analyst for members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment please call 415-655-0001 enter the meeting id of 2499-104-6355 and press pound twice 
Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that will be your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. <coughs> God, we're all, is Jennifer Hand here? Thank you. Let's see if my massive laptop fits on this podium. All right. All right, great. Thank you so much to the board for allowing OEWD the opportunity to present on the Community Economic Resilience Fund SURF program today. My name is Jen Han. I'm the Workforce Alignment Manager at OEWD and the Project Manager for SURF. So today I'll briefly overview the state program, the purpose and membership of the Bay Area High Road Transition Collaborative, and our role um, at OEWD as the fiscal lead on behalf of all Bay Area counties. As a response to COVID-19 economic distress, a couple of years ago, these state agencies established SURF to invest $600 million in community-led economic plans and programs, prioritizing policies for racial equity, carbon neutral economy, job quality, and most importantly, high road training partnerships with labor. To that effect, I would be remiss without acknowledging our partners at San Francisco Labor Council who had joined us earlier today. Uh, many thanks to Executive Director Kim Tavaglioni and the Central Labor Councils who have been essential and critical partners in bringing these resources home to the Bay Area. The state established set regions in the Bay Area nine county region has been awarded $5 million in phase one planning funds. This will allow us to establish our Bay Area High Road Transition Collaborative, um, also known as the HRTC. The HRTC will be responsible for competing for the 500 million available in phase two funds, as well as endorsing other phase two applications, which are consistent with the plans that will develop in phase one. Our HRTC includes nearly 60 partners across all Bay Area counties, all of which are listed in our accept and expend legislation. Our convener will be All Home, which is a housing-focused um, organi uh, organizing <coughs> community-based organization. And the fiscal agent is the Bay Area Good Jobs Partnership for Equity, an association of all Bay Area workforce development boards with OEWD as the fiscal lead. The HRTC already has a 21-member steering committee, which includes community, labor, business, environmental, government, workforce, and educational representatives. Um, this group will oversee all planning and program development, as well as the activities of the research table and various sub-regional planning tables. Um, in the Bay Area, we uh, wanted to prioritize the community and we wanted the community to be able to focus on doing the good work of planning and organizing stakeholders instead of managing a large state grant with numerous partners across nine counties. All local workforce development boards in the BAG-JP have experience doing this kind of work in relationships with the grantor, which is the Employment Development Division. Um, we collectively raised our hands to serve as the fiscal agent for this opportunity with SFOAWD leading. Uh, the full budget for the phase one funds is $5 million, including funding for new OAWD 1823 contracts analyst over two years, who will provide technical assistance to community-based organizations. For this reason, OAWD submitted this accept and expend as an ordinance to amend the annual salary ordinance. The remainder of funds will be contracted or granted out to all home as the regional convener to community members for participation 
and two organizations that serve on the research committee and sub-regional tables and who are listed in the accept and expend legislation. Um, this legislation is retroactive because the state legislation required this two-year program to conclude by September 30th, 2024. Therefore, our program start date will be retroactively October 1st. We are expecting to receive our first draft contract from the state this week. Um, we understand it will be backdated to October 1st, though all project deliverable deadlines will be amended. Um, this concludes my presentation, and thank you so much to the board for allowing us the opportunity to present today. Thanks. Thank you so much. Any questions? Nope. Seeing none, we'll open this item up for public comment. Uh, members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now. How uh, for those listening remotely? Uh, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID 2499-104-6355, then press pound twice. Uh, once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. For those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. And that'll begin your queue, or that'll be your queue to begin your comments. Uh, seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber, uh, Mr. Lamb, kindly unmute or caller. Hi, this is Kim Cavalloni from the San Francisco Labor Council. I just wanted, first off, I want to thank Chair Ronan and members Asha Safai and Manor Melgar for all your work over the past couple of years. Thank you for your leadership on this committee. Um, secondly, we fully support this. All the labor councils in the Bay Area are fully supportive of it. And uh, large number of nonprofits as well. Um, we're looking forward to bringing some great projects and doing some great work on the environment as well as bringing a real worker perspective to uh, workforce development. And we thank you for your support. Thank you. Thank you, Kim Tapagaloni, for your comments. Uh, Madam Chair, that completes our queue. Thank you. Public comment is now closed. I would like to make a motion to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion to forward this ordinance to the full board with positive recommendation, Vice Chair Safai. Safai, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. That motion passes unanimously. Thank you, Ms. Han, for the great presentation. Appreciate it. Um, Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number five? Yes, item number five is a resolution delegated limited authority to execute and deliver certificates declaring the city's official intent to reimburse original expenditures for the costs of multifamily rental housing projects in the city with proceeds of residual mortgage revenue bonds or notes of the city for purposes of section uh, 1.150-2 of Title 26 of the Code of Federal Regulations. Uh, delegating limited authority to execute and deliver certificates granting public approval of residential mortgage revenue bonds to finance multifamily rental housing projects in the city and approving certain related matters. Uh, members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001. Uh, enter the meeting ID 2499-104-6355, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that is your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you so much, and William Wilcox is here to present. 
Thank you so much, Chair Ronan and, uh, and uh, Supervisor Melgar and Supervisor Safai. My name is William Wilcox. I am the Bond Program Manager for the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. Um, I believe the Chair has my presentation. Um, you have a sword, sir? Okay, that's coming up. So today I'm just presenting on a resolution we've submit to streamline our inducement process. Um, the, if we can go to the next slide. Um, the, the goals of this process are to speed up our affordable housing production processes, maintain the same level of review and oversight that the Board of Supervisors currently has, and avoid cost increases for affordable housing from administrative delays related to this process, and also focus staff time on moving projects forward um, instead of, of circling more red tape, and following industry best practices, and implementing an L a recommendation from the housing element. So oh, these bonds, um, the next slide. Uh, and these are conduit tax-exempt bonds, so they are just um, us sort of, of giving the tax-exempt authority to mortgages that our affordable housing projects otherwise take out. There's no obligation that the city incurs. The city just is involved to create the tax exemption, which then leads to qualifying for the 4% low-income housing tax credits that pay for about 50% of the cost of our projects. So, uh, next slide, please. Um, an inducement is just a resolution that sets the earliest date that the bond proceeds, so in this case the construction loan, um, can be spent. Um, and, and in some cases when other funding, in other types of funding, and it matters more, but because of these affordable housing projects have a lot of different sources, it doesn't really matter this date as much for our projects. But we do this before applying because it's required by the California Debt Limit Allocation Committee in order to apply for the tax credits and the tax-exempt bonds. So it doesn't create any obligation to the city at that stage. And often, in many cases, projects induce but never move forward. We had a number of projects that went through this process that then didn't get an allocation or the funding didn't come together later. So it's just this procedural thing that's required for our applications. And then can we go to the next, uh, actually two slides ahead? So currently, projects come to MoCD four months before they even apply for the, um, the bonds at SIDLAC. And then, that, then there's three months after that. And some years, there are only two rounds. So if you missed the four months before the SIDLAC application, you could be delayed by seven months in closing your transaction, which can result in three to four million dollars of extra cost pretty easily between 
interest rates and increased construction costs because we have to uh, process the initial application. I read over it. We go to the city attorney. They draft these resolutions. And then they come to budget and finance. And then they come to the full board. But this item is so procedural that I went through and I checked every one we've submitted for the last two to three years. And there have been no substantive questions on any of these items. There has been no substantive uh, community concern voiced at this. And these items still go. Uh, they come back. Even they, they come back for the issuance resolution when the project is actually going to close on its financing. And we've gotten the award, and it's real. So that level of odor, oversight would still exist either way. And that's really when we discuss these projects. That's when they're really fully baked, and we know what we're doing. So oh, we're proposing an improvement to this process in line with what a number of other places do. Uh, if we could move to the next slide. Um, and this resolution, if the board approved it, would allow the mayor, um, I know the slide says the MoCD director, but the actual resolution is just that the mayor would be able to sign the inducement certificate. So we would do one resolution now, and then we would have a certificate that we submit to SIDLAC instead. And then the board will still approve the issuance resolutions when they actually come through after we've gotten the allocation. Um, but this would speed up the process. Um, we can go to the next slide, actually. Um, so the anticipated outcomes of this are that we have a faster application process for affordable housing projects. We reduce the chance of administrative delays that increase affordable housing per unit costs. And we'd be able to focus more staff time on <clears throat> handling more projects. We have a pretty wide pipeline. And we want to focus staff time on that instead of uh, filling out paperwork related to inducements. And the board still has the same level of oversight um, on these projects and will be able to input on them at a more critical juncture. I thank you so much for your time, and I'm happy to answer any questions about this. Thank you. Supervisor Safai? Uh, thank you. Thanks for coming here today. We appreciate the idea of streamlining uh, the process for application. I'm 100% in support of that. The thing that I think that's being lost here, and yes, you're correct, we might not have done or asked any questions. It is a public record of what actual applications are being submitted for what projects. And so if we remove that from public review at the board, then potentially we're not finding out about the projects to, as you said, until it's fully baked, and then we're going through the actual process of putting together the financing, but the actual process of applying in advance allows us to know which projects the city is prioritizing for CLAC funding. And, and I've been very fortunate. We have had two that weren't just applied for but approved, and that is a, a process in and of itself with our, straight, our state uh, controller and other individuals at the state level. So I would be fine with moving, having this process go forward, but I still would like there to be some record of documentation or some noticing to the board of what project, and maybe you have a response for that, I see you raising your hand, um, to the board of which projects are being uh, submitted for CLAC financing. 
Yeah, thank you, Supervisor Safai. Um, absolutely. So we do issue quarterly reports on our affordable housing pipelines. That includes um, any project that is in a pre-development stage that might be applying for these. Um, we do submit those through the clerk of the board, and they are posted on our website, um, as well as related back to the file number for the ordinance that requires most CDs to submit that report. Um, so th there is already kind of a public record that exists, and we would be really happy. We still share with each of the clerks and each of the board aides also when we do submit those quarterly reports as well. Good. Okay. Thank you. Supervisor Malcolm? I was going to say just that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. That there's, that there's a way, you know, that you can get the information yeah. without holding up the calendar, right. you know, for the, for the project right. sponsor. And so, I believe that was my legislation requiring yes. that report. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad it has another we purpose have, now. We have come full circle. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. That's Thank great. you. Uh, Thank you so much for the presentation. Mr. Clerk, can you please open this item up for public comment? Uh, yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now. For those listening re remotely, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2499-104-6355, then press pound twice. Once connected, you will need to press star three to enter the speaker line. For those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and has your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber, uh, Mr. Lamb, kindly unmute or caller. We hear you. What I want to say is that if you look at our housing element, you supervisors haven't done a good work, or good job on it. I want to know if the gentleman who gave this presentation uh, running about in circles, running around the mulberry bush, what do you have? for people who make under $80,000. Affordable to whom? Oh, you know, this is just like a process that you have to follow. Who follows it? What incentive is given to those who really need housing? What incentive is given to uh, San Franciscans who for the last 40 years haven't been able to uh, get a affordable housing. What does the city attorney, the mayor, the controller, uh, I don't know who, the treasurer, the assessor, what do you say when thousands of families have left San Francisco? And what do you say that there are over 60, 2,000 units vacant and over 43 million square feet of commercial vacant because it's related. Where are you going to get the income from? So here we have our supervisors laughing, you know, I put in that thing then, I did this. But how are you helping the poor? Give us the empirical data. I want this uh, website to show how many of the poor people making under 60,000, 40,000 have been helped. Again, sorry to cut anybody off, but we are timing each speaker at two minutes. Huh, Mr. Lamb, do you have any more speakers in the queue? Uh, Madam Chair, that completes our, uh, our queue. 
Thank you so much. Public comment is now closed. I'd like to make a motion to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion, and forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation. Vice Chair Safai. Safai, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. That motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number six? Uh, yes, item number six is a resolution authorizing the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to execute a standard agreement with the California Department of Housing and Community Development for the for a total amount not to exceed approximately $16.8 million of Project Home Key grant funds to accept and expend those funds for the acquisition of the property located at 5630 Mission Street for permanent supportive housing for transitional aged youth and to support its operations upon execution of the standard agreement through June 30th, 2026, uh, approving and authorizing HSH to commit approximately 13 million in required matching funds for acquisition and rehabilitation of the property and a minimum of five years of operating subsidy, affirming the planning department's determination under the California Environmental Quality Act, adopting the planning department's findings of consistency with the general plan and the planning code and authorizing HSH to enter into any additions, amendments, or other modifications to the standard agreement in the home key documents that do not materially increase the obligations or liabilities of the city or materially decrease the benefits to the city. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2499-1046355, then press pound twice. Once connected, uh, press star three to enter the speaker line. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that is your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, and we have Dylan Schneider from HSH to present. Wonderful, good afternoon, honorable members of the Budget and Finance Committee. My name is Dylan Schneider the Manager of Legislative Affairs with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, and I use she, her pronouns. I am before you today with a resolution that would authorize HSH to accept and expend our final Round 2 Home Key Award for the property at 5630 Mission Street. I just want to pause and make sure our slides are coming up. There we go. Wonderful. All right, so this resolution would authorize HSH to execute a standard agreement with the state, accept and expend up to $16.8 million in home key grant funds, and commit up to an estimated $13 million for acquisition and rehabilitation, and an estimated $2.1 million of operating matching funds for a minimum of five years of operating costs for the program. And then I know we have been in front of you many times about 5630 Mission Street, but as a quick refresher, the board approved acquisition on this site and authorized the city to apply for home key funds in April of 2022. The site is affordable housing with on-site services for young adults exiting homelessness. There are 51 units available to clients, and the units have private bathrooms and some have kitchenettes. Um, and I just want to end by saying thank you all for all of your support for the Home Key Grant Awards we have had under round two. Uh, this is our sixth overall Home Key Award that we have brought for Accept and Expend over the last two years. Um, that brings us to a total of about $212 million from the state in Home Key dollars. So we just can't overstate how impactful this program has been to the city uh, for our efforts in acquiring more housing. And really want to thank you all for your continued support 
the BLA partners for all of their support on many, many reports on this, um, and for our providers and everyone across the city. So thank you all for your consideration. Thank you so much, and now we'll hear, we will hear from the BLA. Thank you. So item six is a resolution uh, that uh, stated approves a home care award of $16.8 million for the property at 5630 Mission Street. Um, this will offset the cost and rehabilitation of the site, um, le leaving about $8.9 million uh, to be funded locally, which HSH is going to use Proposition C funds for. Um, the, the Home Care Award also provides $2.9 million for operating subsidies uh, for the first couple years of the project, uh, leaving about $7 million for the first five years of the project to be funded locally, which will also be funded by homeless gross receipts tax. Uh, we do recommend approval. Thank you so much. Um, any comments or questions? I would just like to be added as a co-sponsor to this item, and please open this item up for public comment. Thank you, Madam Chair. Members of the public uh, who wish to comment on this item and are joining us in person, please line up now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2499-104-6355, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. For those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and that will be your signal to begin your comments. Mr. Seymour, please step up. I'll start your time. Hi, I'll see you all again. My name is Dale Seymour. I have man of many hats. Today I got my hat on as one of the chairman of the local homes coordinating board. We've been very excited at, for this building for many, many years. It's been a great opportunity. I'm also director of source supplies here. We have used that building to house our homeless vets in this great location, transportation. It's away from all the vices and the nonsense that goes on in other parts of our city. So. You know, we are looking at th that new state deficit that we're not going to be able to get around. Mm -hmm. Who knows what might happen as far as allocations next year or the year later. So it's imperative that we do move on this because Sacramento could change its mind at any time and redirect funds. We never know because they have to stay solvent no matter what. So I would just hopefully that we can get this concluded and make it a done deal because, again, once you can, once you can teach uh, Ownership, when I say ownership, it doesn't mean you have to own it, but at least living in a place that you have a, have a stake in when you're 19 and 20 years old, 21, those folks will not be on our streets when they're 30. And that's where it's got to start, of getting people used to paying whatever the little bit they have to pay, paying that landlord, prioritizing it. You know, at, at, at Code Tenderloin, I kind of deal with my ex-students, and I get, for example, I'll get a young lady a job, and an apartment, and she don't understand that your nails are number two. Why haven't you paid your rent this month? Oh, I had to get my nails done. So getting people into these units and teaching them how to live and how to make paying the rent a priority will make a big difference when they're 30 and 40 and 50 years old, because that's where it has to start. So I'll thank you ahead of time for moving this, this uh, bill along. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much, Del Seymour, for your comments. Uh, Mr. Lamb, do you have any callers in the queue? Yeah, kindly unmute your caller. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm Dane Johnston. Um, you may know me from the fire in the Castro. Um, you look up uh, LA Times, it's uh, no home, bad rep, 
uh, big heart is his name of the story. Anyway, I had housing for a while. In 30 years, I haven't had housing. I don't have housing now. They didn't house me for Christmas. They didn't house me for New Year's. They didn't house me for this storm. Okay. But I want to talk about it at the time I did have housing. And um, what they did is they, uh, one day I went in and they said that I didn't pay my rent. Well, I had a receipt. I paid the rent. The people in the building that I paid the rent to, they were witnesses I paid my rent. They, everyone agreed I paid my rent. I had two receipts and I had the money order. But they were going to take me to court because somewhere it got lost between there and the main office. And they did take me to court six months later. But in that six months' time, I called all these organizations trying to get them to do something, saying I have all this evidence, I did nothing wrong, and none of them could do anything. They just kept passing me off to other agencies. It was the rent board. It was the legal aid. It was the three other organizations. And, and, and if they can't help somebody who has all this evidence that they paid rent, and they couldn't help me from going to court, then who can they help? By the time I went to court, I had to save all my money, and I ended up losing some of the money, losing my rent, and getting kicked out, okay? And so after five years of trying to live inside, altogether 30 years homeless, um, it did no good. And now, now they got these things where they're going to try to come up and house me by giving me a room in a shelter. You give rooms to other people. Why don't you give me a room? You know, I've been here for 30 years. I didn't get here yesterday. Offer me a room, not a bed in a shelter. If you even have a bed in a shelter, you don't even have that to offer me. You come and take my tent, and that's all you do. You don't offer me nothing. And that's how you treat your heroes here. They're homeless for 30 years. Why don't you come and give me a decent place? Thank you. Thanks so much for your comments. And Madam Chair, that completes our queue. Public comment is now closed. Supervisor Safai. I just wanted to say really quickly, um, it has been phenomenal to see how quickly we've been able to move with the dollars that we had from Prop C initially and now being replaced by the Home Key program. The cost per unit is far less than half of what it would take to construct this type of transitional housing, uh, affordable housing for youth. And because we have one of the highest concentrations of children under the age of 18 that are one of the highest risk groups of becoming permanently homeless or becoming homeless, uh, we chose this site. Um, it is directly across from a school. It is in a residential neighborhood, and it has already been a phenomenal success. I want to thank the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing um, and also uh, Dolores Street uh, Services, Larkin Street, um, for all their phenomenal work already. And so we're looking to have a, a community celebration, but this has been a phenomenal thing for our community and the city uh, because uh, of course it's accessible to all uh, city residents. So I just wanted to say that on the record and thank you. Thank you for coming out in support of it today. Do you want to do the honors? Oh, sure. I'd like to make a motion to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion by Vice Chair Safai to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation. Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three yes. That motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Mr. Clerk, can you please read, him, read items seven and eight together? Yes, item numbers seven and eight are resolutions. 
retroactively authorizing the police department to accept and expend the following. Item seven is an in-kind gift of two utility vehicles with an estimated market value of approximately 38,000 from the Union Square Alliance to support officers working in the Union Square Alliance area for a high visibility patrol. The utility vehicles will be an outright gift to the police department effective September 1st, 2022. Item number eight is a grant in the amount of approximately 70000 from the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services for the Paul Coverdell Forensic Science Improvement Program to train and procure equipment for the Criminology Laboratory with the project period beginning April 1st, 2022 through June 30th, 2023. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2499-104-6355, uh, then press pound twice. Once connected to the meeting, you will need to press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you've raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that is your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, and we have Patrick Leong, uh, to, who I think is online, to present these items. Thank you, Chair Ronan. Uh, good afternoon. Patrick Leong, Chief Financial Officer for the San Francisco Police Department. The department is requesting the committee's recommendation to accept a gift from the Union Square Alliance uh, for two utility vehicles to help our officers uh, patrol the area for high visibility control. Patrol, excuse me. It would help us fulfill an operational need in using a smaller vehicle with a smaller footprint to help improve responsiveness. This asset would also be able to use in other events that may help improve operational ingress and egress. If there's any questions on this item, I'd be, uh, I would try my best to answer them. I don't believe there's any questions. Thank you so much. We will now open these items up for public comment. Uh, yes, members of the public who wish to speak on both these resolutions and are joining us in person should line up uh, to speak now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001 for the meeting ID of 2499-104-6355, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. Please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and that is your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the queue. And uh, Madam Chair, we have no speakers on the telephone. Public comment is now closed. I'd like to make a motion to send the items eight and seven and eight to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion to send both the resolutions to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Safai. Safai, aye. Uh, Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. Those motions pass unanimously. And last but not least, can you please read items 9 and 10 together? Uh, yes, M items number 9 and 10. Uh, item number 9 is a motion authorizing the Clerk of the Board of Supervisors to take all administrative steps to amend the Budget and Legislative Analyst Services contract with Harvey M. Rose Associates, LLC, for additional work under the existing scope of services to the extent that funds are appropriated for that purpose. And item number 10 is a hearing to consider the review and approval of the budget guidelines for the Board of Supervisors, uh, Clerk of the Board, annual budget for fiscal years 2023 to 2024 and 2024 to 2025. 
Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2499-1046355, then press pound twice. Once connected, uh, you'll need to press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand, and when that system indicates you have been unmuted, that is your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, and we have our steam clerk, Angela Calvillo, and um, Edward de Assises here to present. Thank you kindly, Chair Ronan. Members of the committee, Angela Calvillo here today. This, this hearing does kick off the Board of Supervisors and the Office of the Clerk of the Board's budget uh, for the fiscal years, I'll say the, the budget year and the out year to save time. Um, to, uh, <laughs> so that we can obtain your budget instructions pursuant to the board's rules of order. Um, today, I have just five slides to present to you, a highlight of the f a few of the department's uh, projects to describe the department's request that we feel uh, will better draw residents to the board's public space, its policy discussions and helpful information, and then we'll learn if there are any additional committee suggested initiatives not already co uh, covered or captured in this presentation and continue to meet with all of the other members uh, to integrate their initiatives. I am here today with Edward Diasis. Dr. Diasis does manage our department's financial data and will collect the information if there are any suggested changes here. Uh, we will then finally submit this to the controller and the mayor for their review and then return to you in June uh, for uh, a review of any of the changes that have occurred between now and June. Just to take a quick glance at our current year budget, it is $22.1 million for the department's needs. Um, we are serving the residents of the city and the offices of the Board of Supervisors and conducting the legislative management uh, of the legislative system for the entire city. Our staff received and processed about 1,300 introduced legislative items and all the pre and po post prep work associated. Uh, we approved one. 1,270 legislative items. We conducted about 218 total board and committee meetings. That doesn't count the LAFCO, Sunshine, Arbach, and 136 appointments that we processed. We are grateful for the resources. We do commit to you and to the public to utilize judgment whenever we are spending the general fund money. A one visible outcome I would like to point out is the savings of hundreds of thousands of dollars in general fund dollars in employee overtime and double time by the decision to host the inaugural meeting on a Monday rather than over a weekend. Um, the savings is significant and should not go unnoticed as part of the board's contribution to the precarious economic conditions in the city. Uh, I want to just quickly draw your attention to the pivot table on slide two. This shows the largest cost share at 76% of our budget. Uh, are the salaries and benefits for our positions. We have 93 full-time employees, and we process and, and we have 61 board-appointed commissioners for the AAB for Sunshine, Youth Commission, and the LAFCO. The next largest category is the non-personnel services uh, at 21% or 4.6 million. The budget and legislative analyst services contract is the largest cost share in this category at 2.9 million. And next is uh, for the what is formerly known as the CAFR. It is now known as the uh, Annual Financial Report. These funds are part of the citywide costs to audit the general fund departments. Other percentages, such as M&S, the materials and supplies, and services of other departments, 
remain relatively the same over from the last 25 years. Uh, just briefly point out on uh, the, the third slide, or current year projects, we don't have time for us to go into every single one of these, although I do, I will uh, be available to you to talk about them. Um, I do want to talk very quickly about uh, our deep gratitude for Director Enrico Penick, the Director of Real Estate, and Rob Ryder, our Building Hall Manager. They have committed to funding and procuring new chairs because our chairs are breaking. Uh, and uh, our, some of the furnishings in the department need to be changed out, in addition to our HVAC system across the hallway, which cools our, uh, our uh, servers, which runs our legislative management system and the assessment appeals board system. So we are very appreciative of, of them taking on those costs for us. Additionally, Linda Jarrell has um, provided us space for our, uh, to host our digital, um, <clears throat> excuse me, our, my, my voice is failing on me, our, um, our data center, thank you, Dr. Diasis, our data center, which will host all of our uh, legislative management information and digital record keeping. Um, we also, as you know, item nine was read. This is the budget and legislative analyst expansion. Um, I did have a conversation with the sponsor uh, Supervisor Preston. The um, Board of Supervisors is asking the clerk of the board to add $400,000 to the existing contract. And in speaking with the sponsor, it, it was his intention that that be annualized in the contract. I, I think that it was my mistake. I used the word in perpetuity in the motion. It should have said annualized in the contract. And so after having a conversation with, with um, the controller's office, Risa and Ann Pearson, it isn't really clear with that language and that needs to be changed. So it is uncertain to me if uh, Supervisor Preston was going to return to the chamber and make the amendment to cl clarify the language about uh, annualizing uh, the, um, the amount in the department's budget. It is currently already in the base budget for next year. And um, Dr. Diasis, is there anything further to say about that? It's also in the 24-25 base budget. I checked a few minutes ago. It is also in the 24-25 a base budget. Uh, Edward has checked, and it is there. So the budget's The budget is there. So we would just be following through and annualizing that. I'm happy to make that amendment after you finish. OK. Um, and then um, just to skip to uh, the executive officer for LAFCO uh, was, oh, he is here. Oh, he is here. Jeremy Pollack is here. If you do have any questions on the work that's occurring at the LAFCO with the Public Bank Reinvestment Working Group and the Municipal Housing Feasibility Study. So in, to uh, move through to slide four, which is our proposed budget request. Um, the, uh, again, Director of Real Estate and Linda Jarrell have <laughs> removed some of the funds that we were going to ask for because they were going to uh, handle those items for us. But the one thing that we are going to need a placeholder for is the legislative management system. This is uh, a citywide system. We are going to ask COIT to be supportive of this project and we'll try to obtain the funding 
from Coit for this project, um, but wanted to just point it out here to the committee that we would come back. It says TBD right now in our proposed budget request, um, but without that, we are asking for $410,000 um, in the next budget. And you can see how those items are laid out. We're asking for a little bit of funding in employee morale. Uh, we are asking for a 7,000 there. And a couple of substitutions, um, one for the Assessment Appeals Board so that we have a current temporary position. We'd like to uh, make that a permanent civil service position because we know we'll be using it for the next five years. We have a transfer of function from the assessor's office. We're working very closely with Assessor uh, Joaquin Torres on this particular position. He is not asking for this 1063 in his budget any longer and has in fact loaned it to us currently so that we can utilize it with our assessment appeals board smart system management and integration. Uh, we also currently have a substitution we're asking for a 1244 HR analyst and we're just trying to align the actual level with the duties of that position given that we have 40, uh, 44 legislative aides now. Um, and there is the COLA for the budget and legislative analyst. And in case this body continues to allow for a pathway for COVID-related or ADA-related uh, remote system needs, we are asking to fund one, one position that we, Linda Jarrell has provided to us and is providing us some financial support um, to annualize this position in our budget as well. Other than that, LAFCO, you're familiar with uh, the fact that they approved their budget in May. We have a placeholder in our budget for them currently at $341,240. It's wrapped into the base. They will bring you the actual amount in May. And they are also substituting a temporary policy analyst to go to permanent civil service, which we've included in this request at about $23,000. That concludes the proposed budget. There is one more question for you. It is expanding language access. If that is something this body would like to do, um, we have it at $25,000. Um, I could say a lot more, which I will not. I realize you've been here all day. And the final slide is just sort of asking you those, those questions. Um, if you had any further instruction from the committee for us in crafting our budget, if you wanted to make those amendments to item nine so that there is clarity on what the committee would actually like to do with that $400,000, um, and if the committee would approve the budget request in the amount of 410,000 as I've described it, and if you would like to add 25,000 in the language access. Thank you so much. Supervisor Melgar. Thank you. Uh, Chair Ronan, Madam Clerk, you and I have spoken a lot about language access, um, and it is something that I'm very interested in. I'm wondering what 25,000 buys us and how it, like, I don't know what the budget line item yeah. is for this year. Um, to, to me, like, the most interesting part is, is uh, for committee meetings, because we often have a lot of public comment. It goes late into the night, especially in land use, and uh, lots of folks who don't speak English, and then, you know, just kind of, after seven o'clock, it seems to be the magic hour. So what would this buy us in terms of an expansion? 
So we have had a $5,000 line item f for about seven years now. Um, only recently have we actually gone over that amount, and particularly with the redistricting committee, we went to about um, 35,000, 30, about 30,000. And so we are trying to then say, well, what if we, what if we at least added that much? Um, I have had some members of the board, not a majority. I haven't spoken to all members, but I think it's a good idea that the Department of the Board of Supervisors does have its own um, approved language access ordinance, approved language speakers, so that we don't, they don't have to sign off at seven o'clock, so that we don't have to wait for another department to free up the use of the individuals. What we've been doing is we've been going to a contractor for this work, um, because usually OSEA, when we can use their employees, they don't charge us to use their employees, but when they're not available, excuse me, um, we, we, we have to go to a contractor. And so it is, yeah, the, the mechanism that they use is 20 minutes, then they need a, a break. So we always have to receive uh, two interpreters, and I think it's like $150 an hour so it's, it's very expensive, and we want to at least provide you the level of service in the coming year that we've provided you in the current year. Thank you. Um, I don't, there's no further questions. Let's open this up for public comment, and then we'll work out all the issues. Thank you, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on the motion and this hearing. And are joining us in person should line up now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2499-1046355, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. For those already in the queue, please continue to wait until this uh, system indicates you have been unmuted, and that'll be your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber, and Madam Chair, we have no speakers on the line. Sorry, public comment is now closed. Um, so for, let's deal with item 10 first. I'd like to amend item 10 to change any reference to, from in perpetuity to annualized or annualizing or the proper <laughs> tense of annualized. Uh, Madam Chair, the, uh, the motion is item nine. So it'd be amending nine. I thought it was item 10. Item nine. It, it is item nine. This is the motion to authorize the $400,000 to be annualized is item nine. I see. I thought it was item 10. Okay. Yeah. I would like to make that amendment to item nine. On the motion to amend uh, item nine as uh, stated by uh, Chair Ronan, Vice Chair Safai. Safai, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. Uh, that motion passes unanimously. And then the guidance, so I, I, any comments about adding $25,000 for additional language access? No. You don't think we should do that? No, we should. Okay, we should. I don't, I don't have any comments. We should. Okay, so our direction is yes, let's add that 25000 for additional language access. The, the other questions that you had for us? The Proposed budget, as it's described on page five, uh, will the committee approve that when I come back in February that it will be comprised of these items? Yes. I th I, 
the answer is yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So with that, um, we, I would like to make a motion to send item 9 as amended and item 10 to the full board with positive recommendation. Uh, Madam Chair, item 10 is a hearing, so we should uh, hear and file that or continue it. But a hearing and filing should be fine. I asked you to call item. Uh, yes, we did call them together. But Oh, uh, I'm sorry. It's a hearing. Yes. Got yes. it. Sorry, it's a long day. Um, I'd like to make a motion to, end, to send item 9 as amended to the full board with positive recommendation and to file item 10. Yes. Okay. On that motion, uh, to forward item 9 to the full board with a positive recommendation as amended and that the hearing in item 10 be heard and filed. Vice Chair Safai. Safai, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. Those motions Thank passed you. unanimously. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Mr. Clerk, is there recently. any other items on the agenda? Wait, uh, Madam Chair, that concludes your business. Wait, before you, before you conclude, I want to say one thing. Sure. Um, this potentially might be Chair Ronan's last oh, day as the chair of the committee. <clears throat> and I have served on this committee for two years. I've been on this board for six and a half. And I just want to say, I think, uh, thank you to say thank you to her and her staff for doing such a tremendous job. Uh, last year's budget process was one of the best that I, or the best that I participated in. And we were able to, I think, deliver uh, a wonderful budget for the entire city. So I want to thank her. I've really enjoyed working with her as chair. And I think you've done a tremendous job and I think your staff has done a tremendous job. So thank you. I just wanted to get that on the record before we concluded. That was so kind. Thank you. And because of Supervisor Safai's kindness, um, I would be remiss if I didn't thank my incredible staff, uh, which includes Nikki Sani and Santiago Lenma, um, who uh, did the heavy lifting last year, and then Jen Ferrigno, who did the he heavy lifting this year. Um, all three of you were amazing, and thank you so much. And with that, Mr. Clerk, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you. That was so nice. <laughs>